VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Monday, October the 30th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's produced the program. You'll be speaking with David when you give us a call to get in the queue and on the air. So, if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free, long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86 26, so rough afternoon at Mary Brown Center yesterday, to say the very least. A lackluster, uninspired effort by the Newfoundland Growlers when they dropped two of three against the visiting South Carolina Stingray. Yesterday dropped an 8-2 decision. Ooh. Offer their first road trip of the year. Real chance. You know, it's fun to play at home, but being on the road with the lads, especially as a newly formed team, chance to maybe come together a little bit more and gel, as they say. All right, for hockey fans, you know, for young players and or fans of the game, you know full well that you're assuming some potential risk of injury when you play a contact sport, right? It goes without saying. But then you see some of the really severe, you know, sort of stomach-turning uh, incidents and accidents, and one happened over the weekend, and it ended up in a tragedy. So a young fellow named Adam Johnson, who was originally drafted by the Pittsburgh Penguins, he was born in Minnesota. He's kind of bounced around the world a little bit, played some in Germany, played in Sweden, and he landed playing in England. And over the weekend, Saturday night, uh, uh, the Nottingham Panthers Challenge Cup match against the Sheffield Steelers. Johnson had his neck slashed by a skate. It's not the first time we've seen this. So you think back to 1989 and goaltender Clint Malarchuk, and he had his carotid artery slash and a partial slash of his jugular vein. Some 300 stitches later, they managed to save Clint Malarchuk. In uh, 2008, Richard Zednick had his neck slashed by a skate. And now this incident here, Adam Johnson, dead as a result of his injuries. You know... Pros and older hockey players, you know, they try to get away with wearing their neck guard very loosely just so they don't get a penalty. It's really time to have that conversation. Guys are skating around basically with two razor-sharp knives on their feet. And, of course, with the force and the pressure and the speed of the game, it can be, of course, obviously deadly given what we saw over the weekend. It's really time to say the hell with ego and appearance. It's neck guards. The material out there to be light and flexible is readily available. Wrist guards, neck guards. I mean, it's just an incredibly sad story. The kid was 29 years of age. Anyway, what do you, what do you say to that? All right. The eyes of the international rugby community, of course, squarely on France, where England win the bronze. South Africa beat New Zealand in the final to take their first, first uh, pardon me, fourth Rugby World Cup, more than any other country. But eyes in the local rugby community were in PEI, at the University of PEI, where Memorial University Seahawks men's rugby team successfully defended their AUS Rugby Championship this past weekend. So three in a row. It wasn't even close. So they said a record number of points scored. They didn't give up a single point in the entire tournament. They beat Dalhousie 57 nothing in the final. They beat uh, UPEI, the host, 80 to nothing earlier in the tournament. Now the real test comes along in November 13th and 19th when they go to Trinity Western University, Abbotsford, BC, to play in the Canadian University Men's Rugby Championships. They finished sixth last year, but holy smokes. What a dominant performance by Mons Seahawks rugby team this past week. And good luck. Congratulations. Go get them. A couple of quickies. I don't know if you follow tennis. Canadian uh, Felix Jose Aliassime. Last year he won four times. He was ranked sixth in the world. 
few injuries and some terrible play over the course of the summer, dropped all the way to 19. But on the weekend, he successfully defended his Swiss indoor title uh, versus number 11 in the world, Poland's Hercatch. So nice to see him back on the winning stage. And Brad Guju at the Pan Continental needs a top five finish to represent Canada at the upcoming Worlds. Lost his first match to Korea, 8-5 upset. But as they point out, they lost their first match the last time, so hopefully they can rebound. Not used to playing in the curling clubs anymore, right? The boys are used to playing in the big arenas. And, of course, that comes with a difference. And for the 100-plus runners that participated in this weekend's East Coast Trail Ultra Marathon 50-kilometer race, the conditions were terrible. It was pouring rain and it was wicked cold. And so Wayne Walsh finished first. He uh, broke his own course record. He finished the 50k race in the brutal conditions in 4 hours, 59 minutes and 35 seconds. Incredible. Jordan Fewer second with 507.46. John Adams uh, third at 527.14. And Tanya Joy was the top woman. She finished uh, at 613.08 oh, and actually was 12th in the entire field. So <laughs> 50 kilometers in that condition. Unbelievable. Okay, let's get some other issues of the day. As I said, you know, when a little hit with the VOCM morning show with Ben and Jerry Lynn. So, you know, you get reports and when you look at them just as a standalone, it'll paint a certain picture. Then you look around, compare or contrast these reports to the reality of life, the stories we hear, the issues that the province is facing. Then you look at another report and you try to juxtapose and say, where are we? Because these reports just don't jibe. Number one, Last week, a bit of sparring in the House of Assembly when there was a report released by Westland Insurance and the Canadian Real Estate Association trying to come up with a score out of 100. 55 contributing factors, income, property prices, food, rent, and a bunch of other different weighted uh, issues to come up with an eventual score. Newfoundland and Labrador had the lowest score in Canada, a score of 20. The best cost of living in the country is here. Next closest was the PEI. They came in at 51. So, of course, you know, not every set of circumstances is the same. But when you just contrast that with the hunger count story from last week, so again, I think it points to a very clear trend which has been happening over years, if not decades. It's that disparity between folks who are struggling, even if you're working, you know, the haves and the have-nots, as we refer to them. Because that lowest cost of living story compared to this hunger count story based on food bank usage just simply in the month of March. Food bank usage up up over 12% in this province. Amazing. So it's a 12.4% increase from March of 2022, a 44% increase since March of 2019. It's the same thing across the country. Over 2 million people are using food banks on a regular basis. And of course, the cost of living is the direct contributor to that surge in the number of people are needing to utilize a food bank. And when you break it down a little further, it's really quite something. More than a third of the visitors to the food banks in this province are children. But children only make up 20% of the population. 10% of food bank users are seniors, highest percentage in the country. 65% have social assistance as their primary source of income, but it just points a distinctly clear picture that what we use for the social safety net simply isn't working. And of course, yes, we will look at things like the housing crisis and the tents that are popping up, and we'll try to deal with issues of the day that can see people get the supports they need. But where therein is there more attention to hopefully see a decrease in the number of people requiring food banks, a decrease in the number of people setting up tents as the roof over their head. And here we go, but it's snow coming tonight. So you look around the country, and we're not alone. Then there's the the comparison and the contrast of how different cities are doing different things because this is happening. Go all the way to Cranbrook, B.C. 
they have voted through a bylaw that says on public lands, close to public waterways, public parks and the like, you have to take down your tent at 7 a.m. in the morning, can't put it back up till 9 p.m. So, of course, when cities try to do better to foster a relationship and implement policies that keep people out of tents and out of food banks and out of trouble and out of the hospital, these things are just heavy-handed and do nothing to deal with root cause issues. Then you contrast it to other municipalities who are doing much better on this front. So whether it be, yes, programs and policies and permanent housing and traditional uh, transitional housing, yeah, it's today's issue. But where are the policies to try to keep people out of these circumstances? You know, poverty reduction program in this province was the envy of every province in the country. It sort of went by the wayside, right? So maybe the employment stabilization program, which saw people on social assistance sign up, get some financial incentives, and as a result, what the pilot happened here in this region, 170 people signed up, 40 of them are already off social assistance. They're back in the workforce. That works. Then you look to other circumstances, which absolutely lead people to a very difficult set of circumstances. I've brought this up before, but I think it's worth bringing it up again. In a report in 2019 from the Child Youth Advocate about the number of students that are chronically absent from school, and in 2019 that was about 10% are missing a month or more. And that's just regular month or more. Doesn't incorporate all the PD days or snow days or other circumstances where the school will be closed or they might be absent. What has ever become of that report? Because it's not just about the Department of Education. We don't even really know why these children, why they're absent from school. So we do know that if the case is, and the numbers are clear, if you're chronically absent from school in grade six, 75% of those students never graduate from high school. Now, yes, you can indeed maybe finagle or manage a reasonable, gainful, employed life after high school without that diploma, but as the years roll on, it becomes more and more difficult, and consequently, what do you think is going to happen? So number one, why are they not in school? Number two, are all the various departments that would be impacted by this, do they have a working relationship to do the tracking? And yes, to find out what becomes of the chronically absent child. Because until we can paint a very clear picture that it is a very bleak outcome, I would suggest for many, a high percentage of those chronically absent students, where are the policies to incorporate that report from Jackie Lake Kavanaugh and say, here's how we read it, here's how we've understood it, and here's what we're doing about it. But I don't think I've ever heard a single follow-up since the day that we had the Child Youth Advocate on this program to discuss that critically important issue, which could deal with homelessness, which could deal with the housing crisis, which could deal with a lot of things under the sun, maybe possibly including interaction with law enforcement. There's another story, and this is going to keep happening, because as long as a decade ago, there was all sorts of firm pledges about replacing the dungeon alongside Kitty Vitty. And you've heard the stories. The problem here for politicians is it's not really an attractive campaign slogan. It's not a big vote getter. A lot of people just don't care which is a problem in and of itself. So you've heard the stories about heat and staffing shortages, lack of visitation, rodents, heat, all the rest of it inside the walls of that antiquated, horrific place. And yes, that does mean you build a Ritz-Carlton, but it's not working. They are getting out. And if they come out worse than they went in, that's bad for all of us. So this is about money. In the most recent budget, there was $7 million for the advancement at H for HMP in its replacement. Nothing's advanced. There was the thought that even when the consortium came forward with their final bids, designs, and all the rest, it was at $200 million what the province had budgeted, 
and it's coming in over. Now, the minister, John Abbott, he says, it's nowhere near the $500 million that has been used on the floor of the House of Assembly by the opposition. Government's affordability envelope is reported to be about $350 million. And yes, it might not be of importance to you, but if you stand back and look at the societal implications, it's important to all of us. So we wonder where that is. And then there's a good story about the RCMP and the work they've done on the serious crimes and the organized crime task force. Basically saying they've dismantled any Hells Angels presence in the province now that three members of the Vikings Motorcycle Club have been sentenced to prison. Good news, but that still remains the outlaws and Bacchus, what have you. But without question, that RCMP unit has done pretty important stuff. It's the first time in the province's history they've gotten those types of convictions. And apparently no Hells Angels presence in the province. As a result, the only province in the country without said presence of that notorious biker gang. Anyway, a couple more quickies. The RCMP, once again, warning about an uptick and an increase in the number of prank 911 calls. And this is basically coming from youth. So they're asking parents and caregivers to speak with their children because this is a problem. For starters, it could be uh, deemed a crime. Secondly, it diverts resources from actual emergencies and need for law enforcement. So it's one thing to call the shop and ask if you got Robin Hood by the bag. Quite another to be calling 911. So I guess that's just a reminder to have that conversation with our youth to see where we are. And lots floating around last week and remarkably. So the plea has long been, you know, the question about whether or not tax belongs on home heating fuels. I don't think it, sh it does anyway. It's a necessity of life in a northern country and climate. We've got to heat our homes. So the federal government, in about two weeks, is going to begin the three-year pause on carbon tax on home heating oil. Still tons of questions about whether it applies to housing starts, to use these central heat pumps, what have you, because there's whopping big opportunities for folks to save a ton of money, if indeed that is attractive to you. But the three-year pause in the carbon tax does not, is not associated with gas or diesel, so it has not derailed the Axe the Tax campaign. There was a rally, of course, across Atlantic Canada, culminated in St. John's over the weekend, and if you want to take that on, fair enough. We still haven't heard anything from the federal minister responsible, Stephen Gibo, regarding the clean fuel regulations. Look, for starters, that should be borne by the refineries in full, the end. But this is quite clear, and I generally do admire and trust and respect the comments and analysis coming from the Parliament, uh, Parliamentary Budget Office, and they say we're going to be three times more negatively affected than the rest of the country. That can't be good enough. You know, no answers from Minister Gibo as to how they're going to deal with that because the PBO is not Liberal or Tory or Dipper or Independent or a Marijuana Party or a Rhinoceros Party. It's an independent uh, office that does quality work. They've painted a very clear picture. So you can like or loathe things like carbon taxes or clean fuel regulations, but ultimately, regardless of your political leaning, it's got to be fair across the board. And obviously, in this case, it's not fair. Anyway, you want to take it on? Let's go, and sometime today, very likely tomorrow, we're going to hear about Decision Gate 2 regarding these wind projects, wind, hydrogen, ammonia, shipped for export. It's coming. Whether or not it's an issue that is concerning you where you live, and I'm sure it concerns a ton of folks listening to this program, a rally made its way all the way to Confederation Building last week, members of the public from the province's west coast, Port of Port Peninsula, Codward Valley, and otherwise, they were there. And so those decisions are coming tomorrow. And if that's a topic of interest to you, 
we can do it. Uh, very quickly here, we'll get into updates. So you've heard Brian Madore in the VOCM newscast talk about the devastating fire on Lime Street and now it's jumped from the initial uh, structure into others. Noah Shepard's going to join us right after the break to give us an update of what he sees on the ground. And a very quick sports note, and we see lots of rope at open in the world of politics, is on this date in 1974, the rumble in the jungle. Muhammad Ali knocks out George Foreman in the eighth round in Kanasha Zaire, retains the heavyweight boxing title with, of course, the famous tactic, the rope-a-dope. We're on Twitter. For VOCM Open Line, follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, we'll kick off the show with Noah Shepard from VOCM News, and then we'll be speaking with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's get a live update from downtown St. John's. Join us on line number one is Noah Shepard with VOCM News. Good morning, Noah. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Paint us a picture. So we know the fire started some while ago and it was affecting one structure. What are we seeing now? So right now it uh, it has definitely spread to another structure here already, and that second structure has multiple units. So uh, we just heard from Deputy Chief uh, Roger Hounsel, and uh, they are going unit by unit to try and tackle this fire. They uh, they say it's contained at the moment, so there's no uh, no real concern about it spreading any further now. Uh, and no word, or not no word, but. Um, uh, no reported injuries or anything at the moment. They're still assessing that, but there uh, doesn't uh, believe to have been any injuries at this time. That could change as we get more information. There's three crews down here tackling this, so uh, pretty major fire. The worry is, and I remember the night on Harvey Road, waiting to see if the fire was going to hop the street over to Lime Street, and who knows, a replicate of the Great Fire because the units are old, they're wooden, they're tightly congested in those parts of the city. So that worry is real. So I'm glad to hear they think they've got a contain- so that it won't spread any further. What's the status of power or water or what have you in and around that neighborhood? So at the moment, they have uh, power cut off to the neighborhood to facilitate, make sure you know uh, doesn't uh, spread as an electrical fire or anything. Um, at the moment, uh, all water is going to the fire hydrants. I'm not sure inside the surrounding units if they still have water, but the roads are shut down here pretty good. Uh, residents are all outside of the police tape. Uh, they're still pretty steadily battling this. Uh, so at the moment, you know, it's all hands on deck uh, just to try and make sure this doesn't spread, as you mentioned. Paint us a picture of the type of presence of the St. John's Regional Fire Department, the RNC, first responders like uh, paramedics, what have you. Paint us that big picture. Paramedics are on the scene as well as uh, RNC. And, of course, uh, there's a large contingency of St. John's Regional Fire Department here. There's three full crews, around 25 firefighters. Uh, That includes all support staff, uh, a number of trucks down here, uh, two right in my uh, immediate vicinity. I've actually, uh, I believe there's three, a number of hoses going. it's uh yeah it's it's a full scale to try and stop this knock it down that uh that uh, original structure right now was just a a smoldering mass and uh you can feel with the wind down here you can feel the water and ash is hitting uh is hitting us and uh here behind the police tape and as well we're having uh you know the smoke concerns are very big i would suggest that anyone who has trouble breathing uh, if you're in the area you may want to leave because it is thick and uh, I'm getting short of breath myself down here just uh, speaking like this. It's uh, very thick and uh, it's not going anywhere anytime soon. Uh, The deputy chief mentioned that uh, they're not expecting to have this knocked down until the afternoon. 
what does traffic control look like because the unfortunate reality is human nature people want to be lucky lose they want to have a, a peek at what's going on here so I'm sure they've kept the car the automobile traffic out how about foot traffic because as I said people want to see these things unfold as scary as that is there is a number of people down here. Uh, it has thinned out a bit now that, uh, you know, times for schools have started. So uh, lots of people are, you know, moving on with their day. There's a bit of foot traffic here, but there is a pretty wide perimeter set up uh, with the police tape. So luckily they're kept well back at the fire. I appreciate the update this morning, Noah. If anything changes, call us right back and we'll have you on again. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks, Patty. Thank you, Noah. Take care. It's Noah Shepard, who's VOCM's reporter on the ground at that fire that looked like it was going to be jumping structure to structure. That was my initial fear. Just given how tightly packed and congested it is there, the age of the structures, the material with which they're built. Oh, boy. Let's keep going here. Line number two. Good morning, Rod. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Very well, thanks. How about you? I got a bit of a cold, but I'm doing a lot better. I'm glad to hear that. My call is lingering, but c'est la vie, that time of year. What do you, what's on your mind this morning? I'd like to talk about the uh, the uh, cat hoarding problem that uh, I, I talked about last week in Cornerbrook. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, they've uh, the public has reached out and helped quite a bit, uh, which is, you know, really, really appreciated. As well, uh, it should be noted that uh, uh, they've got lots of supplies right now. However, they're going to have a massive debt bill. And just on a side note, if anybody would like to help and make a small donation, uh, they can do that at the uh, uh, Hummer uh, Valley Veterinarian Clinic, I believe it's called. And if they could go there and make their little donation or EMT, that would help. Now, the real reason I'm calling is concerning the fact that this is actually a... uh, a uh, animal control issue. This is not an SPCA issue. And again, uh, the uh, city, as well, they've offered some initial help, have walked away uh, after that. You know, again, uh, when somebody calls and says, you know, there's 30 animals living in a house, that's an animal control issue. But uh, for some reason, they're not responding to that. Uh, after our last call, uh, they did go and and help gather them up, and uh, uh, they offered a uh, a building that they had there for two days, and then uh, actually gave it to them for six or seven. However, they needed something more long term, so now they've gone out and, and rented a space uh, up in the in the Maple Valley. So this is more money now that they've actually got to take on uh, to uh, you know save these animals. And again, it's an animal control issue. So while we have a department that has an animal control uh, part to it, they're not doing much about it. And I'm wondering why the city of Cornerbrook has fallen down on this. Uh, Again, you know, there was a time uh, not that long ago when animal control was paramount in Cornerbrook. And uh, and it was well looked after. Uh, The former mayor... Uh, Charles Pender, uh, hate him or love him, I can tell you right now, he was there for the animals, and he made sure that uh, that was part of their uh, their mission was to make sure animals were cared for and looked after. 
but this current administration doesn't seem to uh, uh, give a darn about any of it. So what did it look like, let's say, when Charles Pender was the mayor versus what it looks like today? So just give us some numbers or something to consider. Okay, so back in the day, back in 2007 or eight, uh, I was asked, uh, being an animal advocate, I was asked if I would help uh, find a home for a dog. And I went on, this, on your show with Bill Rowe at the time, and uh, I said, look, you know, I've got this dog here. They got no room in the in the pound. Could somebody, you know, out there take this dog? Somebody in Newfoundland. And immediately, uh, Emery Brown with the uh, uh, SPCA in Clarenville called me and said, "Look, I'll take the dog." I said, "Great." Now I had to get it there. So back on the show, I went immediately. Bill took me on a few minutes again later, and uh, we found a ride. And thus started pet transfer. Then I went to Charles and said, Charles, we got a real problem here. You know, I said, we're putting down 1,500 on the average. The city of Cornwall was destroying about 1,500 animals a year. And I said, this is ridiculous. I mean, you know, this is over the top. Can I try to save some? And he said, no more we put down. He said, have you got a plan? So we started. And we married all the SPCAs. We we got them together. Uh, the program that I started up of pet transfer said to the crowd in Clarenville, "You got an extra cat or dog? Stephenville got room for it. I'll get a ride for it." So it kind of got everybody on the same page. And Charles was a big supporter of it, and gave us time to work through it. And uh, so you know, since that time, it seems to have uh, the training has fallen off the tracks. And we don't see that kind of support from them anymore. And I'm getting this direct from the horse's mouth. The people in the SPCA and Cornwall are saying that they're just not getting the support uh, that they need and used to get. You know, I, I don't know why things like that go by the wayside, because very quickly it turns into the mess that we're seeing you report on in Cornerbrook. And we know this is an issue in many parts of the province. Labrador comes to mind right off the top of my head. Uh, Rod, anything else quick before I sneak on another call? No, Patty, again, thanks a lot, buddy. And, uh, and we'll, we'll, I'll, I'll, as soon as I find out something else, I will report back. Appreciate the time. Thanks, Rod. Thanks, buddy. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, before we get to the break, you have certainly have noticed that the, this year's Poppy campaign is now in full swing. Join us on line, line number three is Jen Dion. Good morning, Jen. You're on the air. Oh, hi, Patty. Thanks for making time for me today to talk about the campaign. Happy to do it. So, of course, you're also involved with Branch 56 down in Pleasantville. But one of the fixtures on the Poppy campaign for decades is your late father, Rod. When this comes around, of course, getting over the loss of a parent, regardless if they're 100 or 105 or 75, it takes time. So when the Poppy campaign comes around, what does that mean for your thoughts about Rod? Oh, he's with me every day, uh, Patty, for sure. And... uh, you know, his voice is in my ear, <laughs> you know, when, when I, when I go down there, uh, I've done a couple of shifts already and, uh, I'm no Rod Dion, but, uh, I tried to do my best to, um, promote remembrance. Dad was so fierce about, um, a couple of messages I want to share with everybody today. Um, so first of all, there's, you find there's a lot of people that kind of race by the booth and say, Oh, I don't have any money. And one of the things that my dad was very important to communicate is you don't sell a poppy. 
we don't, we're not there selling them. You don't have to give us money. Um, what we're doing is wearing your poppy for the two weeks leading up to Remembrance Day means that you're doing uh, a very visible and powerful symbol of remembrance, of thanks for those who made sacrifices for our freedom. So whether or not you have money, you can stop and get your poppy. The important thing is to put it on and wear it for these two weeks. So separately, of course, if you wish to give us a donation, um, that is wonderful. The poppy fund is not money that is collected going to the general coffers of your legion. It is a sacred trust that is established directly for the care of veterans and support of veterans. That uh, to access funds from the Poppy Fund is 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 a, is a separate process. That money is really held and uh, administered very strictly. So your donations are going directly to support veterans in need. I mean, there's always going to be some people talk about the white poppy or the red poppy. Are poppy donations and wearing, is it up or is it stagnant? What do we know? Because there's an awful lot of the permanent poppies out there now. Because, you know, one thing people will say is the little stick pin. Will I lose 10 poppies in two weeks? So there's the permanent poppy and all the rest. So what is that meant for the fundraising initiative and the awareness campaign that is the annual poppy drive? Are you there, Jen? Did we lose Jen Dion there, David? I think we may have. Let's see. I will put her on hold. We'll see if we can see that we can re-engage that particular connection. All right, let's take a break. So when we come back, one of the fellows who's a co-producer and co-creator of this hour's 22 Minutes, Made in Canada, talking to Americans, the Rick Mercer Report for some 15 seasons. He's an officer of the Order of Canada. He's a memoir back in 2021, which is called Talking to Canadians, won the Stephen Leacock Medal for Humor. He's a Bayman. He's from Middle Cove. Rick Mercer joins us right after this to talk about the extension of his memoirs. Rick Mercer, The Road Years, a memoir continued. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the program. To complete the introduction, Rick Mercer was uh, just recently invested into the Order of Newfoundland and Labrador, and he joins us on line number one. Good morning, Rick. You're on the air. Do we have Rick on line number one, Dave? Is the pot there? Let's see if we can try again. Rick Mercer on line one. You're on the air. Do we have him now, David? Good morning, Rick. Hello. Welcome to the show, sir. We had a technical glitch, but you're live. Thank you very much, Patty. Thanks for having me. Happy to have you on the program. Had the pleasure of uh, skimming through the book over the weekend. Right off the bat, the dedication is perfect. For Gerald. Oh, thanks very much. Why? Yeah. Well, you know, Gerald Lunds uh, and I go way back. We're partners in, uh, in in television and also partners in life. And, uh, you know, he was the guy many, many years ago who said you should go to Ottawa and do a, a one-man show about the Meech Lake Accord, how completely ridiculous that sounds. And, of course, he ended up producing this hour's 22 minutes, and then he ended up producing the Rick Mercer Report. So I've been really lucky in my career that I've always had the producer, and TV is a producer's medium, uh, right there in my corner the entire time. It's, uh, it's uh, you know, made all the difference in the world. And that's pretty lucky if you end up hooked up with, like, the best comedy producer in the country. 
100%. And he's a lovely man. You know, when you have the, the, the track record that you have, not only for satire or for comedy or for the rants, how important was it for you to take the show on the road, for instance? You know, and it's kind of been maybe by Johnny Harris talking about, you know, still standing, what have you. You'd be in the most remote, obscure place in the country all the while talking about the biggest issues under the sun. How does that marriage work? Uh that was everything. Uh, when we started the show, we knew a couple of things. We knew there would be a rant. We knew there would be politics. We knew there would be a sketch element. Past that, I wasn't really sure. And it was Gerald who said, the show is going to live or die based on you on the road. You have to get out there on the road. And he had much more faith in me than I had in myself, actually. And I would say, well, what am I going to do? And he'd say, you'll just talk to people. You're good at that. And we basically went everywhere. Uh, you know, if you, when, the, when the, the 15 seasons were up, we had a map with the dots of every place we had visited. And the country was covered from coast to coast to coast. And uh, I'm very, very proud of that. And I love the fact that I got to talk to, yes, prime ministers, and I got to talk to rock stars and everyone in Rush or the Tragically Hip. But I spent a lot of time talking to cab drivers and fishermen and farmers and people working on assembly lines and everything in between and and putting those people on tv and they've never been on tv before they're probably never going to be on tv again but making them look like rock stars that was that was the name of the game and we did that every week for 15 years uh, you know i can only speak for myself i thought they were the best parts of the show because you know we'll see the jan ardens and i know you love jan and stephen harper and belinda stronick and up and down the line neil Pert. i know who's a favorite of yours but those real life stories that kind of told the tale because we'll always have the news and other satirical shows and programs like this to deal with the uh, other name brand politicians in particular one thing i don't think the country can forgive you for though is naked bob ray right well it was only on a show like ours where that could happen and you know and i write about bob ray being naked on the show of course because i told him when it was over i said you know it doesn't matter what happens this will be in your obituary this is going to be mentioned um he was running for the leadership of the liberal party at the time and so he was right in the thick of a very serious campaign and i decided i was going to take all the leadership candidates fishing on a fishing trip and i thought oh we'll learn a lot about everyone and of course stefan dion didn't want to go and and michael uh, michael and Dacia didn't michael didn't know who i was and so bob said yes and we ended up fishing and it was a beautiful northern ontario scene when the leaves were changing and it was just glorious and we had this beautiful boat beautiful rock and water and didn't get a bite not a single bite and we were in a we were on a on a small lake that you had to fly in on a on a float plane like you would have to be an idiot to not get a fish up there and i started getting very worried going everyone's going to watch this and go how did they not catch a fish and we had to change the channel and i said to bob we have to get naked and jump in this lake and he said why would i do that i said if you jump in this lake you're going to beat michael ignatchev and that was it. The clothes were off in about 35 seconds, and we jumped in the lake, and that was it. No one talked about how we didn't catch a fish. Well, you had to try a new worm. And so Bob and his skinny-dipping forays with you was sort of his uh and Shawinigan handshake, so to speak. Uh, let's, let's talk about Belinda Stronach. Of all the people who want to talk about it, of course, she had some name brand, her dad Frank and Magnum, the auto parts, what have you. And she you know boldly told you that she didn't need Stephen Harper's permission to be on your show, blah, 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 blah. Out of nowhere, she became someone. You 
you know, I know she was always someone leading into that, but all of a sudden she was part of the national conversation. Even uh, required Helly Pete or Peter McKay to borrow someone's dog for a cherry-eyed uh, bit in a Nova Scotia field. Tell us about Belinda Stronach, because that always just amazed me, how all of a sudden she was a national conversation. Well, it, there's a bit of a chapter on Belinda for that very reason. I always, very early on, I made a decision not to become, I would always be friendly with people in politics, but I would never become friends with people in politics. That was a pretty important distinction for me. And I interviewed Belinda on the show when she was a conservative member of parliament. And it didn't go that well because she was very well unhappy, I think, with the conservatives at the time. Same-sex marriage was a big issue. She was on the opposite side of Stephen Harper on that issue. She was very tightly guarded. It wasn't a very good interview. At the end of the interview, we happened to talk about Africa and aid in Africa. And she said, I'm going to Africa someday you should come along and I said oh yeah sure okay and I thought it was just the type of thing that rich people say and I never gave it a second thought and then a couple of months later I got a call that Belinda was going on this trip and would I like to tag along as as an observer Uh, you know no strings attached and through the jigs and the reels I went on this trip with her and when we were there we saw the very real need for these anti-malaria bed nets and so we started this charity together, and it became a big part of the TV show. But then one day she got up and crossed the floor. And, of course, when that happens, it's a, it's a giant shift in, in the political world in Ottawa. She stopped an election from happening and a, and a vote of non-confidence, and she became a very significant figure in Canadian politics. And it was a little awkward in some ways because we were friends, but then she was soon gone after that. So it was okay. But it was, uh, it was quite an adventure getting to know her. And uh, because of her, we started the Spread the Net Foundation. And you'd see school-aged children and their classes raising money for these uh, malaria nets. Now, all of a sudden, they were doing something like that, but they were learning about a continent that they probably knew very little about in the first place. And inside the chapter of Spreading the Net, you know, it's not quite as bad as Bob Bray naked, but it is you as a firefighter pinup model, and that's also very disconcerting. <laughs> the spread the net stuff, and I didn't, you know, we founded this thing, and there were millions of dollars raised, but I didn't do anything except tell the kids that I would show up at their school. And it was the most personally rewarding thing that we probably ever did on the show because you literally had schools from all walks of life. It wasn't just the biggest schools and the richest schools. Schools from all walks of life raising money every single year so kids on the other side of the planet could sleep well at night. And there was always an amazing story. Like one year, the school that raised the absolute most money by a long shot was in Fort McMurray, a high school in Fort McMurray, in the same calendar year that the wildfires happened. And those kids were at school. The fire alarm went, and they literally thought it was... A drill. They knew there were the fires off in the distance. They thought it was a drill. They went out into the parking lot. They left, and most of them didn't come home for months and months. Many of them didn't even get to go home and pick up their own belongings. They became displaced all over Canada. In the same calendar year, they're back at school, and they decide the way they're going to thank the rest of the country for all the goodwill that was shown to them is to raise money for Spread the Net. I mean, you could smell the smoke in the air at that time. And they raised, like, I can't remember, $45,000. A tremendous effort. And every time I went out and talked to students who did something like that, I always came back feeling 
better about the country than ever at any other point in the year. It was always incredible. A couple of quickies. What has Jan Arden meant to you in your career? Well, Jan became a regular on a show that philosophically did not have regulars. I mean, Gerald and I were, we were very firm about that. We would not become a show that had regulars. She came on the show. Uh, she brought her A game in a way that we just didn't anticipate. I knew halfway through the segment, she opened her mouth, funny, funny, funny. I kept thinking, oh, we can't put that on TV. We can't put that on TV. She was tremendous. And I knew that she would become a regular and we'd become great friends. She's a super troublemaker. I admire her for that. Um, and over the years, of course, we went on many adventures. Many of them involved me terrifying her dangling her off the side of the CN Tower, sending her down a zip line, playing paintball with her, doing mountain climbing. I mean, we had many adventures, and uh, we always had a great time. It was, it was those days at work where you're embarrassed that this is your job, you're having so much fun. I, I met her in uh, Jasper at the Jasper Park Lodge a long time ago, early 90s. She was performing on Good Morning America, of all things. Uh, last one, Rick. I mean, you're, it's not like you're out of the business. You're out there. You're on the road. There's no shortage of fodder, whether it be Canadian politics, but, of course, the strife that we see in the conflict and the horrors and the atrocities. Are you glad that you're not in the weekly grind to try to speak to those in humorous terms, all be with your classic edge? Or do you wish you were there week in and week out finding a, a graffiti laden uh, alley in Toronto? Um, you know what? I don't miss it right now. I'm kind of glad to be out of the opinion business. I've got opinions and I share them every night with two or three friends on the telephone. Um, but I'm kind of glad to be out of the opinion business. I think um, things are pretty toxic right now. People are very angry right now. Uh, I, I'm glad that I have the option of turning off the TV and walking around the block. Because when it's your life and it's your business, you don't have that option. You're watching Question Period every day. You're watching the news every night. And you're completely immersed in everything that's going on. And God forbid if you had to make a comment on things that are happening, like, say, in the Middle East, I, I would be completely at a loss. And I'm glad right now to take the time, look back on the 15 years I had on the road, and talk about some of the fun times and the funny stories and the great Canadians and the average Canadians that I spoke to. It's a great reflection. It's a fun read. It's called Rick Mercer, The Road Years, a memoir continued. Say hello to Gerald for me. Thanks for the time. Good luck with the book. Thanks, Patty. Take care, Rick. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. When we go back, Carbon Capture, rejoin our conversation with Dr. Leslie James, a process engineer, professor, and former Chevron chair at Memorial University. Don't go away. Welcome back to the uh, the program. So the province has dangled some $6 million out there to look at what it means to commercialize carbon capture, storage, and utilization, CCUS. For short, join us online. Number two is a process engineer, professor at Memorial University. That's Dr. Leslie James. Dr. James, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Best kind. Welcome back to the show. How are you doing? Thank you very much. Great to be here. So we know that they do indeed use depleted oil fields for carbon storage, but where else has it been stored effectively? And talk us about what makes an effective storage. So actually, um, you can use depleted oil fields, but to date, most of the CO2 has been stored in aquifers. So saline aquifers underground, they are... Um, you know, reservoirs with good properties, with a you know with permeability and porosity to be able to hold the CO2, and then they also have a cap rock or seal to keep the CO2 in place. These aquifers are not drinking water. Okay, so these are 
um, saline aquifers at least as salty as the ocean. So does that also mean like the big salt mine uh, find over by St. George's, uh, would something like simply a salt mine be an effective storage opportunity? I'm just trying to understand what the saline aquifer yeah, means ab- versus salt mine. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, that's a really good point, Patty, and a good question. Um, so, yes, saline caverns can be used. So underground, like once we mine them, then they're open. Uh, but salt domes or uh, can also be used, We're, but we'd have to first leach out the salt. Now, those are being looked at for hydrogen storage a lot. Um, the The saline aquifers are literally like you know it's it's a sandstone or a carbonate and or a dolomite so it's it's a porous rock and the co2 would be inside the pores of the rock so instead of being a big cavern it's like being in the holes of a sponge so this will be a very fundamental lay person question so why exactly can you not simply dig a hole 1.5 kilometers into the earth's crust pump in the carbon put a ceiling rock on top what are the properties of the walls the containment that makes it different from saline aquifers salt mine versus a hole in the ground the hole in the ground is essentially what we're talking about right instead of being a hole we're going to drill a well because it's easier when you're trying to get down one and a half kilometers to drill a well than dig out open pit mine, right? Um, and it, you know, so we're just looking for locations where we have the properties that will actually contain the CO2. So instead of going in and making a bunker underground ourselves, we're looking for those geological properties that exist. So this is not just me, Patty. This is a whole mm-hmm. suite of geo, you know, uh, geoscientists and earth scientists, geologists, sedimentologists, you name it, uh, geophysicists, everyone. Um, so, yeah, I don't want you to think it's, you know, I look after the fluid flow and the re- interactions between the CO2 and the water and the rocks. So how deep does any of this have to be underground, whether it be in a saline aquifer or any of the other opportunities that you speak to? So is there an issue concerning depth? Um, yeah, so the depth is re- relates to the density of the CO2. So CO2 is really compressible. Um, so if we if we pressurize it, the density will go from the density of air, pretty much, to almost the density of water. Um, so what we're looking for in our storage is that it's deep enough that we can get nice dense phase or supercritical CO2 so that we can store a lot more of it. Um, so we're typically looking at a very minimum of about 800 meters. Personally, I, I, I like more around the 2,000 meter mark. Once the carbon is pumped in, you know, we've talked about the properties of these holes in the ground that make them more adequate or more uh, part of the solution here for storing carbon. But what's the seepage look like? I mean, is there a carbon loss after time or what does that look like? Because if you can pump it down and it's a permanent solution, that's one thing. But there's very few permanent issues in this world. Absolutely. So, I mean, bottom line is that's where we need the research. Right, so we need to try to understand where and, and, and quantify those uncertainties for our particular potential storage zones offshore Newfoundland. And so, you know, we, it'd be nice to say, and we can look, so, you know, we're lucky that we have a lot of seismic data from offshore Newfoundland that gives us an indication. We have quite a few wells drilled that go down through these aquifers and then into trying to find and explore for oil and gas. Um, 
So we have well logs and we have some drill cuttings and we have some things that we can start examining to see. Uh, but ultimately, if you're going to take on a CO2 storage project, you would want to have good monitoring to see. So what you're looking for, and ideally, instead of having one sealer barrier, it's just like if you're trying to prevent leaks, you want a secondary containment. So if you've got, you know, your hot water, um, your hot water tank in your house, a lot of times now, if you go and put in a new hot water tank, they'll ask you to put a tray, you know, you'll sit the hot water tank in a tray, which is your secondary containment. And so what we want for, for carbon storage is you know, a good couple of layers. And we want to understand how thick they are, how good the properties are, and and, and test them in the lab. And then ultimately, you know, if it all looks good, who knows, we may do carbon storage. And if we, if we ever do, we need to monitor it. Is there a difference and a different risk level when you do it onshore, nearshore, offshore? Because the ocean is a carbon sink anyway, whether you talk about eelgrass nearshore or otherwise. And then, you know, with these, let's just say there's some percentage of escape and it's a saline aquifer or a salt mine up by St. George's. Does it simply mean that the carbon will just go back into the air or is there potential complications where, you know, proximity to watersheds and the like? So is there a built-in risk level betterment offshore versus onshore? Um, no one, you know, so I think there's a perceived, if it's not in my backyard, it's, it's better, but ultimately, um, you know, if we get carbon leaking, the carbon, as it migrates upwards, it's possibly going to interact and mineralize with some, you know, mineralize, um, with some of the rocks. It may self-seal, but as it comes up and if it were to leak, it's going to turn back into CO2 gas because that supercritical is dependent on the pressure and temperature. And at atmospheric conditions, it's going to be a gas and we're simply leaking it back. Um, If we were to, so, you know, we know that we can't overpressure pressurize the CO2 as we're putting it down. We can monitor that if we were to inject it. Um, But, you know, ultimately, I think it would be a slow leak based on our operational expertise as opposed to going in and potentially, you know, putting in a, 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 you know, making a crack right away. Are we primarily looking at this where you're capturing carbon emissions at our offshore platforms and fields and then pumping it back into the depleted oil reservoirs? Or is there, you know, well, how tricky is it to transport carbon? Let's just say, you know, places far afield and they look at what we're doing here or in the North Sea. What does it mean to actually transport carbon like that? Or is it more efficient and effective if we just try to capture emissions where they happen right here and pump them back down? Yeah, so great. Ideally, you want that hub you want to be able to capture and inject right where you're producing that CO2, right? That's that's ideal you d- so that you really don't have a long transportation line. Unfortunately, where we're producing the CO2 is not necessarily where we have good geological storage all the time. Um, you know, we actually, so we we do produce carbon dioxide from our offshore platforms. That is a... Um, you know, small amount, and, it, and it's a low concentration for the oil that we produce. 
it doesn't mean it's good. I mean, we want to reduce levels as much as possible and definitely capture and inject it. But, um, you know, it's right there. If we were to go and transport it from somewhere else, so let's look at like Ontario and Quebec. They don't have a lot of storage up there, yet they have all the factories they do, and they have a stronger reliance on fossil fuels for their energy production, at least Ontario. Quebec is, is hydro. Um, so what do you do with the CO2 up there? Well, we can, you know, we're, we could potentially pipeline it down to St. Lawrence or ship it. The good thing is about CO2, again, is that it is easily compressible. Um, so, you know, in terms of compared to hydrogen, for instance, we, we can compress hydrogen an awful lot, but unless we bring it down to super, super low temperatures, it's still going to be a gas. CO2 at least turns into supercritical and, and dense phase, and we're able to transport a lot more of it on the same, you know, in the same volume. So it can be done. It's not, it's the question is, is it economic, right? And right. that's so, yeah. And so technically, we can do this. We're, we're after, we're solving a complex challenge that is, you know, technical, it's economic, it's regulatory, it, it's, it's social. Um, so, so yeah, it, it does get complicated, but technically we can compress the CO2 and transport it. Yeah, I guess you just do the, the weight of what, what emissions are included with trucking it versus storing it and all the yep. rest of it and the economic model that they're in. I read an interesting story over the weekend about hydrogen, whether it be gray, blue, green, or white, and what that might mean for some of these battles that uh, scientists like you were facing. Uh, last thoughts go to you, Dr. James, before I sneak on a quick call in the news. Patty, thank you very much for having me on, and I would love to continue the conversation, and as would a bunch of faculty on all topics of energy. So, If you put them on to me, we will organize time with them for sure. Awesome. Thank you, Doc. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. Dr. Leslie James, Process Engineering Professor at Memorial University. Before we get to the news, line six. Alex, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Hi there. I'd just like to put a little plug in uh, for my fourth annual Marion break coming up. Let's do it. Go for it. Well, it's uh, it's all fund raise, funds raised this year will be going to Bridges of Hope. Uh, for $10 a ticket, it's going to be a great show. We're very honored to have the Navigators join on us. Um, it's on November 25th at St. Mary's Church Auditorium, Craig Miller Avenue, uh, 7 p.m. Uh, real cool to get the uh, the navigators to join you. So good on you for doing that. And Alex, keep, thank you so you much. Know, keep up the good work. You're really doing a lot of good uh, awareness work and fundraising. And so good for you. I'm sure Mom's quite proud. I hear from her all the time. <laughs> yes, thank you. Thanks for this, Alex. Perfect. Have a good one. You too, buddy. All the best. All right. Bye-bye. Before we, let's go to the news. When we come back, the carbon tax announcement of last week, a three-year pause only on carbon tax, only on home heating fuels. Jay Goldberg is the Interim Atlantic Director with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. He's next. Then you. Don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Before we get to our caller on line number four, apparently there's a fair bit of traffic in and around Livingstone Street. People want to have a look at the fire, the damage, and the like. So law enforcement are reminding you, please stay away from the area while the firefighters and other first responders deal with the issue. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the Atlantic Director with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. That's Jay Goldberg. Good morning, Jay. You're on the air. Good morning. Welcome to the show. 
great to be with you. Okay, so the carbon tax announcement last week, you know, many Atlantic premiers for sure had been calling for this particular pause, specifically on home heating fuels. What's the Canadian Taxpayers Federation's takeaway? Well, the takeaway is we're glad to see this, but uh, we don't think it goes far enough. Um, You know, in Atlantic Canada, about 40% of households use home heating oil, but there's all kinds of other households uh, who don't. And so, and then, and to add to that, there's households across the country who don't. In Ontario, only 3% of households use home heating oil. And in fact, natural gas is less damaging to the environment than home heating oil. So we're calling on Prime Minister Trudeau to suspend uh, the carbon tax on any form uh, of heating your home. We think it's wrong. Uh, he, he made a small step last week, but um, you know he was really carving out a specific area, trying to cater specifically to those living in rural areas of Atlantic Canada, which absolutely should be done, absolutely. But we're saying it's unfair to everybody else who uses a different method to heat their home, and it needs to be extended countrywide. When you talk about emissions, because that's what a lot of this conversation is about, it also comes with market pressure points on price and what have you, but for in coupling with this announcement is also the opportunity for folks with you know pretty significant subsidies coming from both levels of government here provincially in Newfoundland and Labrador and the federal government to move away from it in full, like with a central heat pump or what have you. So does that temper some of the concerns because at some point we won't have to offer any of these rebates or subsidies or grants and or maybe be able to remove the carbon tax organically with moving away from things like coal fire generation, things like using home heating oils? Look, I'm, I'm for an all-of-the-above strategy when it comes to energy. If we want to look into uh, cleaner energy, you want to look into heat pumps and make sure that they work properly and that they heat homes in the winter uh, when it's freezing, uh, that's fine, 100%. But look, we've got the rest of the country that also uh, is on a, another form of energy that also could be making the transition, but we're not seeing this policy countrywide. We're seeing it specifically targeted to the Atlantic Canadian region. Again, that's a good thing. Uh, that that the region is getting a break on home heating oil uh, carbon tax because that was going to cost the average Atlantic Canadian home $250 in carbon taxes this winter. So it's a big relief for folks all across the region. But you've got people all across the country who are suffering from these massive carbon tax bills on home heating. You know, single mothers trying to pay the bill, uh, seniors on fixed income who are facing these massive increases in home heating prices, but we're not seeing a uniform strategy nationwide um, to do the exact transition that you're talking about. What kind of numbers does the Canadian Taxpayers Federation use when it comes to the not only the carbon tax, but the implication of the quarterly rebate? The PBO, Stats Canada, they talk about the fact that some 80% of Canadians will get back what they pay in carbon tax or more than they pay in carbon tax. How do you factor that in? Because there's that thought. That's not coming from me. I'm just using numbers here. The thought is that the elimination in full right now of a carbon tax may leave some percentage of Canadians, maybe as high as 70 or 80%, with less money. How do you factor that into this conversation? Or do you? Well, I mean, those numbers uh, really aren't um, credible. That, those are numbers that the government's put up. But the parliamentary budget officer, the nonpartisan watchdog on Parliament Hill, has said the average family in Canada this year is going to lose $500 from the carbon tax even after the rebates. And they did the analysis, and the average family in every province uh, is doing that. And you know what? Prime Minister Justin Trudeau just admitted that in fact his policy isn't revenue neutral. He kept saying families are going to be better off if we move forward with this carbon tax, if we keep hiking the carbon tax, 
and we give incentives. And, you know, he said that for years and years and years. And now all of a sudden, he's saying, actually, yes, our carbon tax is making life unaffordable for folks in Atlantic Canada. We have to go in another direction. So this is the government actually admitting uh, that they were wrong, that they were not telling the truth when they said that this was going to be a net benefit to most families, that it would be an easy transition, and that people were going to be better off. Because if he truly believed that, if the government truly still believed that, despite the analysis from the nonpartisan parliamentary budget officer, uh, then he wouldn't have made the policy decision that was made last week. And that was made because there's pressure all throughout the region where folks in Newfoundland and Labrador, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, Prince Edward Island are all saying in really record numbers in recent years that they're prepared to not vote for the Liberal Party next time around because of this very issue. I think we Canadians are polled on taxes. The consensus is pretty clear. We want to pay less. <laughs> I mean, I, it doesn't even matter what we're talking about insofar as taxes go. It's just, you know, standard rationale that, you know, when polled and the word taxes popping up, then people want to pay less. It's just the nature of the beast, no doubt about it. Uh, and nothing's revenue neutral unless it's across the board, 100% of Canadians, dollar in, dollar out. I mean, and that's just the actual definition of neutral, and this has never been that in full, in part for some, for sure, for the most no, it's simply not. I'd like to touch base on a couple of very quick ones before we move on this morning, Jay. Or would you like to say anything else about the carbon tax? Uh, <clears throat> no, I'm certainly happy to talk about other issues. But, you know, the carbon tax, the one thing I will say is that uh, even if you look at, it, at, at its effectiveness, British Columbia's had a carbon tax for 15 years. That province's emissions keep going up. Nova Scotia and New Brunswick have had low carbon taxes. In fact, Nova Scotia had the lowest in the country until earlier this summer when Prime Minister Trudeau imposed the federal model in Nova Scotia. That province was leading Canada in reducing emissions. So not only is the policy not working, it's not working financially for folks at the kitchen table, but it's also not working environmentally. Uh, quick comment on BC. Their emissions have not gone up commensurate with population growth, and it hasn't hurt their economy. They've, they've had it for, I don't know, 15 years or more now. So I think there's an interesting case study in BC that can be possibly applied nationwide. The current structure of the federal scheme does not work. I've never thought it did. But I think there's something to learn from the province of British Columbia. Uh, okay, very quickly, when it comes to filing our taxes, it's a stressful time. CRA has proven to be very difficult to deal with for many Canadians. You know, getting bogus information sometimes directly from CRA, complications regarding SERB and business loans and all the rest. So the thought is to take some of the complications out, some automatic filing at CRA. I know the Federation considers that a straight-up conflict of interest, but what's the better solution? Because the current landscape of a complicated uh, tax regime makes filing your taxes time-consuming, potentially costly, and yes, when you deal with CRA, you probably have a wicked old time of being on hold, maybe not to give accurate information. So what, why necessarily is automatic tax filing as bad an idea as you say it is? Well, what I would say is that absolutely interacting with the CRA, nobody wants to have to do that. Yes, our taxes are too complicated. But what I would say is what we need to do is simplify the tax code so that the average Canadian can do their taxes on the computer in 15 minutes, send it in, uh, and there's no question that it's right. So that involves getting rid of a lot of these niche tax credits and lowering tax rates overall so that people will know very transparently what they're paying uh, and what they're going to have to get back and what they're going to have to file. Uh, but what I would say on the topic of automatic tax filing, the concern really is now that, for example, uh, when you're trying to figure out how much tax you're going to have to pay at the end of the year, 
some people want to contribute to their retirement account, their RSP, to avoid having to pay certain taxes uh, and to put more money in there to save for retirement because that's not taxed at the time that the money's put in. There's also tax credits that some folks may be eligible for that they may not know exist and the government may not um, you know, be giving people every break they're entitled to. They might just generally file the taxes, but they not, may not really nail down on the individual person's position. So, you know, what we're saying is simplify the tax code, make it really easy for every Canadian to file their taxes. But the CRA, they might file your taxes quickly. Uh, they, you know, perhaps they do it for everybody, but there's a lot of different factors that could benefit some people, help them save for retirement, have tax credits that uh, folks may not know about, that the government may not, may not automatically implement. And so that's what we're saying. And then finally, if the CRA is going to do uh, your taxes automatically, uh, again, there's a lot of lack of faith in the CRA. They've had a lot of scandals in recent years. Uh, you know, there were billions of dollars that were given during COVID to people in, in prison, uh, people who were underage and people who didn't qualify for the program. So we've seen the CRA show before. They have all kinds of problems, and that's exactly why we don't think they should get even more power. Yeah, I think some of those problems were created by the uh, Treasury Board and the Department of Finance, to be honest. They were given guidelines that were a bit wonky, the very serious lack of oversight and monitoring, eligibility requirements led to some of that, which CRA has to wear, so be it. That's what they do in this world. And what, the two things that you need in this world, we need lots of things, but you need a good, trustworthy, trustworthy honest, reliable accountant and mechanic. I uh, appreciate the time, Jay. Thanks for this. Pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Jay Goldberg, Interim Atlantic Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to speak with a Mon Med student talking about a fundraiser for one of their colleagues. Then we're going to talk about the carbon announcement once again and then speak with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Gillian Murdoch. You're on the air. Hi. Hi there. How are you? Great today. Thanks. How you doing? Good. Good. What's going on? Um, so I'm calling in. I'm a second-year med student at Memorial, and I wanted to share a fundraiser me and some of my classmates have been working on called Hills for Humanity. Um, so for this fundraiser, every day for the month of October, a group of students has been scaling Signal Hill uh, in support of a medical student named Caitlin, who is going through recovery from a stroke. Um and we are we have a fundraising goal of five thousand dollars that we actually just surpassed this morning which is really exciting um but we're leaving our link open our fundraising link open until the end of the week um so we're we're hoping to gain some some more donations and all the funds will be going to uh caitlin and caitlin's uh recovery fund so this was simply people making donations out of the kindness of their hearts, no, nothing on the other end, right? No, yeah, just people donating out of the kindness of their hearts. How's recovery going for your friend? Um, I think it's going fairly well, um, but she's, go she's looking for this uh, physiotherapy program in Toronto, um, which is costly, um, but this program will help her with her mobility, um, which is something that she's looking forward to. Um, so we're really happy to be able to do this fundraising effort in support of her, her recovery for this additional bit of mobility. Is she able to continue her studies while she recovers? 
Um, yeah, so Caitlin had her stroke at the end of her first year of medical school. Um, and then she completed, she just about completed her second year. Um, and before she started her clinical rotation, she decided to take a year off to uh, continue working on her physiotherapy and uh, uh, improving her, her mobility a bit more. So she's taking a break right now and hoping to resume her, her studies after her after her uh, physiotherapy. Well, fingers crossed for a successful stint in Toronto. Uh, A couple of personal questions, Gillian. Feel free not to answer. Where are you from? I'm from New Brunswick. I'm from Fredericton, New Brunswick. Have you selected or decided on uh, a discipline or specialty that you're going to pursue? No, I haven't done that yet. With some of your colleagues that may be leaning towards family medicine, and we know the thirst for family doctors across the country, are you hearing much conversation about the thought that the Canadian organization is going to add a third-year residency for family doctors, moving from two to three? Now, other parts of the world, it's as many as five years of residency, and two is the shortest in the world, in the modern world anyway. Do you hear any conversation about that? Um, yeah, definitely. Um, I, as I'm still early in my studies, I don't really have any strong opinions on the on the new addition of this the the training, the extra training for family medicine residencies. Um, but it's definitely an interesting change and uh, something that's on on the students' radar for sure. And they say they're doing it because of the uh, the breadth of issues that family doctors would have to deal with, and this would be a better training ground and approach than uh, just two years to simply add that third year. What's the chances a girl from New Brunswick is going to stay in practice in this province? <laughs> Um, I I really love Newfoundland. I've really enjoyed my my time here studying so far and I have I have some grandparents and extended family in the area so it's been it's been lovely being here and it's hard to say uh, where where the next few years will take me but there's definitely uh, I felt very welcomed in Newfoundland and have really enjoyed my time here so we'll see we'll see where where things take me in the next couple of years and once again fingers crossed because we could use yeah. your services what part of New Brunswick are you from I'm from Fredericton so you right there in UMB's backyard yes right in UMB's backyard that's right is there a medical school there's only 17 in the country is there one in New Brunswick there's a satellite campus for Dow in New Brunswick. Okay. Uh, good to have you on the show. So give us the link for people who would like to make continued donations to aid Caitlin's trip and the physiotherapy she'll get in Toronto. Yes. So if you look up GoFundMe, Hills for Humanity, um, our fundraising link should come up. So it's GoFundMe um, is the platform, and then the fundraiser's name is Hills for Humanity. Um, So if you look that up, our fundraising page should come up and you can make any donations there. And all funds will be uh, donated to Caitlin at the end of the month. We'll leave the link open for an extra week for any additional donations that come in. And we're very grateful for all the support we've gotten so far. Um, So thank thank you for having us on today. And uh, we look forward to being able to support Caitlin the rest of her journey. Yeah, I'm happy to have you on the program. So you guys get it all. You get the the feel good because you're doing good, the fresh air, the exercise, all in the one neat and tidy package. Good to have you on the show, Jillian. Good yeah. luck with your studies. Okay, thank you. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, there you go. Uh, good stuff there. I, I do wonder about you know folks who are thinking or choosing or going to absolutely proceed with family medicine. 
it stands to reason. I mean, the breadth of scope of practice for family doctors is extraordinary. You know, so the question being asked is whether or not this additional year residency from two to three will deter some potential family doctors. And again, in some other comparable countries with very similar healthcare delivery models and training for their pros, you know, it's as upwards as five years of residency for family doctor. I'm just curious what those in that field think about that move here in this country, which I think is coming next year. All right, let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, Clifford Small, he's the CPC member for Costa Bay Central North of Dam. He's in the queue. Then you don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the Conservative Party of Canada member for Central, pardon me, Costa Bay's Central Notre Dame. That's Clifford Small. Good morning, Clifford. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? Best kind today. Thanks. How are you doing? Oh, doing pretty good. Just calling in to have a little chat about the schmazzle that's happening right now with carbon tax, um, the liberal flip-flopping and whatnot, and the uh, inequalities in what they're doing. You would think that would be welcomed announcement, considering the fact that one of the real go-to slogans has been axe the tax, and so here's partial axe falls on it, but not good enough. No, it's not good enough, Patty. It's a, it's a partial victory for us. Uh, it's it's a reward for uh, a lot of the work that we've been doing in the House. And in fact, in the last year, we've had six motions to axe the carbon tax. Uh, on every one of these uh, motions, the Liberals voted against it. In total, there's been 24 times that we've introduced motions into the House uh, where the Liberals have voted against removing carbon tax. And just Tuesday past, I had a question and question period about uh, carbon tax on home heating, and the Liberal member for uh, St. John South, Mount Pearl, actually got up afterwards and mocked me. Two days later, they they removed carbon tax from from um, from furnace oil, but it remains on propane. And uh, in fact, I had a conversation with a, a one of uh, uh, one of the, uh, Mr. McDonald's uh, honorable uh, MP McDonald's constituents a couple of days ago, who said he installed a brand new propane furnace a couple of years ago. And it's not even quarter paid off yet, and uh, and here we are. I mean, I'm not really sure what to say to the carbon tax uh, conversation. The politics of it is exactly what it is, and we'll see where it lands. And, you know, like the Taxpayers Federation and others talking about uh, consistent polling on Canadians. You know, there's a couple of things. There are corners which don't even call it a tax, but, of course, that's how people view it and feel it and talk about it and dislike it. And when Canadians are polled about the level of taxation, I don't think anybody's surprised, regardless of what party you're interested in voting for, where you fall on the spectrum, people want to pay less tax. The end. It's hardly insightful to hear Canadians say that uh, they think they're paying too much tax. Yes, and I listened to your conversation with the gentleman from the Taxpayers Federation. This tax is making life more unaffordable for Canadians. And the, the big part of this tax is is on uh, fuel that's used in transportation. As you know, and I've said on your show, I've said to you uh, quite a few times that in a place like Newfoundland Labrador, 
where we're so remote from where everything where everything's uh, manufactured or produced, the cost to get those goods to the store shelves or 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 even to get gas into the and, and diesel into the fuel tanks at at filling stations to get these things to the island and to Labrador, especially in Labrador and remote parts of Labrador, it, the, the cost to the consumer is heavily impacted by carbon tax and removing it from, while removing it from from, um, from furnace oil is a good first step. It's a very small first step. And, uh, you know, and it's a divisive, it's a divisive step as well. Uh, you look at, uh, Folks right across Canada that are burning natural gas and propane, there's no relief for them. And for Goody Hutchings to to say that Western Canadians should vote Liberal if they want to have their voice heard, well, what about all the motions we've had in the House? Uh, the Liberal Party certainly heard those motions, read those motions, and then they voted against them. So fo- folks out West have a voice, but it continually gets disregarded by the Liberal Party. They sure like to think so or say so. Anyway, that much I know. Um, so you mentioned Labrador, and of course, carbon tax implications on site of production is different than filling up a transport truck with diesel. There are two different implications regarding carbon tax on that front, and that's where I think maybe sometimes we've kind of dropped the conversational ball a little tiny bit, even when we try to understand, you know, what the impacts are in inflation, even when we try to understand the impacts on a carbon tax. Because at the grocery store, now we're leaning on things like corporate greed. Their revenues are up, their profits are up, but their margins are very very eerily similar, and so says the Competition Bureau. When in fact, some of their input costs have come down, but it hasn't been reflected in the price. So I think when we just say corporate greed and or inflation, the fact of the matter is cost of fertilizer is down, machinery fuel is down. Has that reflected in lower price at the grocery store? No. Why? Because we don't talk about it. So we just get to lean on the easier parts of these conversations as opposed to, you know, competition, distribution, and what it means on site for production. And has that been translated to what I pay in the grocery store? It's very little part of the conversation, which I think deserves a bit more. Uh, you mentioned Labrador. So it, it, let's say the carbon tax goes away tomorrow. That's not going to cure the ills for the price of stuff in Labrador. So what would your play be, do you think, Clifford? Because, you know, there's two programs. There's Nutrition North, Airlift Subsidy. Neither have worked because the price of goods and services, especially groceries in Labrador, the North Coast in particular, is out of whack entirely. So what would a plan be if you're going to focus in on the complications in Labrador? Uh, Patty, we we we're, ha- we're having conversations uh, on Labrador and making the cost of living uh, better in Labrador. But of course, something like that we wouldn't be able to release until the election comes. So I can't really comment on it for you right now. But the Conservative Party will definitely be better for Labrador than what they're dealing with right now. Um, you know, um, and I and I read I read uh, an article Don Martin just wrote about a carbon tax uh, prices uh, beyond the next election. So, you know, the Liberals are rattled. They're chipping away at the low-bearing wall, according to Don Martin, uh, that supports their environmental platform. So, you know, doubling down on a commitment to fight climate change? Are, are we, are we, is this for real? You can't make this stuff up. I think it's doubling down on their attempts to uh, reverse the polls that have become palliative for the party. So we're going to continue to fight. We're going to fight hard for Canadians. 
Uh, I think we have a motion in the House today that will give the Liberal Party uh, another another chance to vote, to support. As, as they've been clearly saying on, on all the, the uh, news outlets uh, and on the legacy news outlets, Liberals have been saying that they've listened to their they've listened to their constituents. And so that's brought them to where they are today, and that's and that's great. It's great for people who are who are burning furnace oil for the um, for the next three years, I guess. Anyways, but after that, we'll see what happens. I guess then we're going to keep on heading towards the sixty-one cents per liter uh, mm-hmm. to continue uh, driving the cost of living for these folks. But um, you know, we can we can even look at what's going on in Newfoundland Labrador. We've got our banks now. We've got we've got. Eight banks about to close Newfoundland Labrador. Three of them are in long range. One of them in Burgio, 213 kilometers from Cornerbrook. So uh, that I, I think that the uh, Liberal MP should join me in a fight to keep uh, keep these banks open it, because it's impacting uh, carbon, uh, the uh, carbon footprint of, the, of our seniors who need to go to a bank teller. And, uh, you know, in, in my riding, Twillingate, Lewisport, Botwood, uh, you know, folks from Leading Tickles, from Twillingate, from from areas that are going to be well over 100 kilometers from uh, the nearest bank, it's going to drive their cost of living up. And, uh, and, all, and that's all impacted by carbon tax on the fuel they have to burn in their vehicle. Sure, we can talk about banks in a second. But, you know, you said doubling down on climate change and or controlling emissions. So is that not reasonable policy regardless of the party we're talking about because I mean your party does have you know speaks to it acknowledges the issue and I mean look no further what the oil companies say about uh, emissions and the impact that they have look no further than the insurance companies and the amount of money is being paid out for adverse weather conditions so is it not a good idea to quote-unquote double down on climate change related policy and matters absolutely Patty we can double down Uh, you know the Paris Accord uh, called for a 45% reduction in emissions by 2030. Well, 40% of the emissions right now are from cold, from from the burning of coal, and it's it's a well-known fact that converting from coal to natural gas reduces their re- reduces the emissions from from that aspect by 20 by 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 50%, which gives us uh, an easy 20%. Of, of of the 45 that uh, Paris Accord was looking for. And an even better idea is hydro. I mean, that's why the government, both Liberals and Conservatives, have considered the developments on the Church River as a nation-building exercise, predominantly because Nova Scotia, in and around 55-60% of their power comes from coal, which is remarkable in 2023. This day and age, that's nonsense. So natural gas, absolutely part of the transition solution, but hydro even better, right? In my opinion, well, I guess the emissions back that up. Very quickly on the banks, what are you suggesting the federal government should do about the location, the physical location of a bank? Well, the the banking system is federally federally regulated. Yeah, not where they are. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff about the uh, processes and you know avoiding subprime mortgage crisis and regulations and fees, but not where they're located. So what would you tell? You'd say to Scotiabank, you must remain on Fogo Island. You must remain in Lewisport. Well, you, I guess you can't really tell them that they have to remain there. But when you look at the the banking pol- the the federal banking policy, and right now it seems like Liberal Party 
is supporting the merger between HSBC and RBC. So we need more competition and not less, and we need more options for 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 consumers. And uh, what, when we look at what's happening in rural Newfoundland and Labrador with the closure of these banks, it's absolutely devastating to to especially our seniors. And Newfoundland and Labrador probably has the, the highest proportion of seniors per capita in the population. So it's it's absolutely devastating. And if uh, if liberal ministers want to talk about carbon footprint and reducing emissions, uh, letting these banks close down, there, there should be something, there should be some, a lot, we need a lot of pressure put on them uh, by our Newfoundland Labrador MPs, because this is uh, happening in, let me see, it's, it's in three three federal ridings, uh, for sure. So I'm, I'm hoping that uh, fellow MPs from Newfoundland Labrador step up to the plate and uh, join their community leaders and uh, make make a push uh, and, and persuade these banks to stay in our rural communities. What's the argument to persuade them? Because their model is what their model is. If the branch doesn't stand, I mean, it's not about uh, access to a teller. For them, it's about access to the other products and services where they actually make money. So what's the persuasion look like? What do you say to persuade them? Uh, I, I think the banks are doing pretty good. Uh, you know, uh, uh, BMO last year had over $10 billion in profit. Bank of Nova Scotia had over $7 billion in profit. So it's it's simply not good enough for for these banks to be treating our, our rural areas the way they are. And from where I'm sitting and where from where the people that I'm talking to are sitting, they're they're looking at this as a complete attack on on rural Newfoundland Labrador. And they're expecting a lot of folks are saying there'll be no banks in rural Newfoundland Labrador in, in the next uh, five to ten years. So I just wanna I wanna put my support beyond the communities that I represent and I hope that the banks are out there listening and we're gonna we're gonna come up with a plan to fight this to make sure that these banks remain open. Appreciate the time, Soren Cliff. Thanks. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. You too. Bye-bye. It's Cliff Small. Bye-bye. He's a CBC member of Coastal Bay, Central Notre Dame. Uh, when we come back, Elizabeth is there to talk oil to electric. Uh, do, or do you want me to take the duck rice right now, Dave? <laughs> okay, let's go to line number five. Say good morning to Chantille Butler from the Flavarium. She's the executive director. Good morning, Chantille. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing? Not too bad. I'm worried if I pronounce your name properly. <laughs> it's Chantal. Chantal, welcome back. Hi. How are you doing? Great. Thanks. How about you? Good. Um, just calling about our upcoming uh, 35th annual duck race. Let's do it. What do we need to know? Okay. So it is on November 5th this year, and um, it's at noon at Stephen Herter Bridge, which is just um, off of Rennie's Mill Road. Uh, tickets this year are online. Um, they can be found at Rafflebox or on our website at www.flavarium.ca. And uh, as most people know, um, all proceeds go towards our environmental education program. Which, of course, is critically important. Every time we talk duck race, I'm going to make this plea. Bring back the rubber duckies. Let's dump them out of buckets into the river. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, we're hoping for a, uh, um, you know, a successful duck race this year. We're hoping for a big turnout. We're hoping to see people at the, the side of the uh, the river this year. Last year, we had a good turnout. Um a couple of years prior was uh, not so good because of COVID. So we're hoping um, this year that we can uh, see some more people. 
Sure hope so. So give us the details one more time before we run out of time, Chantel. Yeah, so it's at noon on November 5th, and it's at Stephen Herter Bridge, uh, not to be confused with the Flavarium. Mm -hmm. So it's off of Rennie's Mill Road. Tickets are on sale online this year and not in person. So I need people to know that they can't come to the race this year and expect to purchase tickets. So if they want to have a duck in the river, they're going to have to uh, buy their ticket in advance. And the easiest place to purchase tickets is on our website. It's uh, right on our front page. You hit buy tickets. And that's www.flavarium.ca. Appreciate the time. Anything else you want to say this morning, Chantal? Uh, no, just uh, support us, um, you know, support our environmental education programs and uh, our new upcoming childcare center. I look forward to this year's race. And whenever you want to share some information about programs, services, fundraising at the Flavarium, you're more than welcome. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me on and have a great day. Same to you, Chantal. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, uh, COVID and oil to electric and then whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's try line number three. Steve, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Good morning. Morning. I just I called a couple of weeks ago there just um, about the, the vaccination rates that Dr. Fitzgerald was uh, uh, claiming was happening in the province about boosters. And I think I pointed out to you that it was very false. Um, I sent you an email last uh, over a week ago. Did you get a chance to look at that? I'm not sure, Steve. Uh, I try to keep up as best I can, but I'm one man showing the emails. And there's some days that I get hundreds, so I do my best to pick away as, as quick as possible. Okay. Well, I sent it last Thursday, 5:56 p.m. If you want to have a look at it sometime, because just to verify what I'm going to tell you now again, um, basically. Uh, our vaccination rates on the, the Arcturus experience, whatever, uh, COVID-19 dashboard for Newfoundland and Labrador used to be pie charts. Then they went to the, the graph sort of thing. And in the bottom left corner said the vaccination rate over time. Um, it used to be reported as fully vaccinated, having two doses total. At the end of last year, it was 93% of the population, the whole population, not just the eligible. And then they changed it to being up to date, which was defined as having two doses uh, the second dose of a primary series or booster dose in the last six months. They used that from January of this year to the end of March, but the, the numbers went from 24.2% down to 22.1%. So 2% of the population that had received two doses didn't get a booster to, to be up to date. Then they changed it again to being, well, they said vaccinator. They misspelled it as vaccination which was then defined as having had the same thing, either completed a primary series or had a booster dose since September 21st of 2022. And September 27th, or yeah, September 27th of this year, that number had risen from 22.6% 20, uh, in April to 23.4% in September, 0.8%. Now the people that met the criteria in April obviously still met the criteria in September. So 8.8% of people had received a booster maximum in the last five and a half months. Now, further to that, October 25th, just last week, the latest update came out, and the number is still 23.4%. And if you look at the email I sent you, what's interesting to look at is the age groups there, the six months to four-year-olds, the 5 to 11, 12 to 19, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80-plus, every single number is unchanged. Not one single age group budged by 0.1%, which is, I mean, we're told 23% of people have received boosters in the last six months, 
yet not even 20 people over the age of 80 have received a booster in the last month. I, I just I'm, I'm, I called Dr. Fitzgerald's office. I talked to her receptionist there, Mohit, nice fellow. And I said, I, I emailed him the same things I emailed you. I said, just look at this one and this one. And this is before the October data, just April to September. And I said, you can read the definition. It's people that got a second dose or got a booster since September 21st of last year. Same thing in September. And the number's only gone up by 0.8%. I said, why is Dr. Fitzgerald lying? And he, it only took him a minute to see. I see what you're saying. Yes, that, I see what, exactly what you're saying. No one has called me from her office. They haven't emailed me. I've sent them emails, and I've called several times. I'm told it's being passed up the chain through nurses, apparently, to get to Dr. Fitzgerald. And she hasn't looked at it, apparently, or maybe she has, and she just doesn't want to actually acknowledge that she's lying to the public. I personally think that anyone in a public position like that, I'm the public, you're the public. If you call, you should be allowed to get a response, if not from that person, from their, their assistant or whomever. But she deliberately, they, they've ducked my calls for two years. It's, it's taken two years to get through. I actually had a friend call because when I call my house number, my cell phone, my wife's number, the Minister of Health, and the chief medical officer, none of them accept my calls because they don't want to deal with the facts that they're lying about. And I challenge anyone to dispute any of this. She is saying 23% of the population are up to date having received a vaccine in the last six months. That number goes back over a year. And all the data currently in existence shows that any any possible immunity conveyed by, inferred by the, these vaccines wanes to zero in eight to 12 weeks and becomes negative. The people are getting more infections after that. Okay, so other than the fact that you suggest she's lying or misleading people, what's the point? Is there a point beyond that? Well, what's going to Yeah, I think she should uh, lose her job or be arrested or something. Like, why is she doing this? Is she getting kickbacks from the government? I mean, we know she gets a lot of bonuses. What's that for? Is it for spreading misinformation, disinformation? Because if I did that, I'd be, like, taken down. I'd lose my accounts, whatever. I've never had a single one of my posts question taken down or otherwise because it's all taken from government reported data she should I, be arrested whatever I'm well let me ask you this patty as i said section 181 of the criminal code was repealed by the trudeau government if it wasn't and she was telling people telling six-month-olds to get vaccinated and they end up getting myocarditis or heaven forbid dying then her lies led to deaths and i'm sure that's happened if not deaths at least people have been maimed by these vaccines. Yeah, I think that's completely yeah, exaggerated, they, to be honest with you. I mean, I've got people telling me that I'm going to hang for trees in a Nuremberg 2.0. I mean, the conversation on COVID vaccines is just mind-numbing, to be honest with you. Because, I mean, sitting in this chair, I'm, people telling me they're going to pay my one-way ticket so I hang for trees. And the, what, what the hell is going on here? I mean, it's just, Protected. it's gone you're beyond. Well, you're, you're safe, you're safe. Don't worry about it, right? But that's the problem. There is no accountability. So that's what I'd like to see when you ask me that. Yeah, take back that repealing of that so the people in your position can't lie to people or her position. Knowing I'm not a doctor. I don't, I, don't, I don't get to tell people what to do regarding vaccines or vitamin D or going for a walk or anything under the sun. It's, yeah, it's not, where this becomes not, almost too stupid to even talk about. I'm accusing her. You're not listening. I'm accusing Dr. Yeah, it's the same accusation you made two weeks ago. It's about her. Okay, we haven't. I've only spoken to her twice in my life, even considering the whenever the pandemic started and wherever we are in it, I, which I don't really know how to term it anymore. Endemic over, pandemic continues. Don't know. I know the prevalence out there is pretty significant. How that compares to 
early days, don't know how it compares the uh, current strain going on versus, say, I can't even remember what they were called now, Delta or Omicron or, or anything else. But anyway, Steve, uh, if, you, if you think she owes you an answer, fair enough. If you get paid by the public purse, you answer to the public. That's how it works. I uh, appreciate the call. For it, right, so I mean, the other thing about these these boosters Quickly. is to get your booster to be as protected as possible. The booster is based on BA one point five, which is no longer in circulation in the world. And I mean, any any doctor worth his or her salt will tell you that any any virus that is rapidly mutating can, by definition, never be stopped by a vac by a vaccine. That it's absolutely ridiculous. You vaccinate people, then the variants they they're the ones that then are, are uh, in, in play and, and it's just it can't be done it's absolutely ludicrous okay. to consider that you're going to vaccinate against i mean what it's just like the cold why, why do we have no no cold vaccine why don't they have that well the same reason and to think that we're told oh, yeah we have a flu vaccine and it's the exact same circumstance we develop a vaccine for this right, seasonal flu season based on what we saw in yeah, the southern hemisphere not, that's just how that works right no it doesn't because the vaccine the flu you're talking about three strains you're talking about hundreds, if not thousands, or millions with, with COVID. They, I mean, there's oh, so I many. Have no idea. There's one, millions, strains. Okay. 300 mutations on the spike protein. So it's not the same, not even close to the same. But you just said it can't be done to uh, create a vaccine for a different strain when, in fact, I just said that it is done and it's done every single year. And then you t- continue to tell me that I'm wrong again. So there's no there's, you, can, you can make a vaccine. It just sure. won't work. It's going to cause the variants to become more prevalent. That's all. And yet we had the that's seasonal flu vaccine. Some years the uh, the efficacy is over 40 percent. Yet these conversations never happened. Something changed in this world in the last uh, little while. And we, we talk about it as if it's only in Canada where the conversation has changed, which is, of course not reflective of the reality in the world so anyway i got to get to the news steve i'll have a look for your email yeah well, my my point is this vaccinating seven month olds is absolutely insane not a single person under age 40 unvaccinated has died in newfoundland and labrador people should talk Germany to their doctors today, they have 80 or 68 kids that have died following vaccinations and you can say it wasn't the vaccine or it was or whatever but 68 kids in the 5 to 12 year old range have but, died following vaccinations zero Zero have died. The problem is, is that people use that number as if it's straight up vaccine related. Excess deaths. Every excess death is apparently associated with the vaccine. It's just ridiculous. It's completely and utterly ridiculous. Sweeping under the rug because that's what's happening. It's like, no, well, Steve, it's not. not it's being a little bit, a, a little closer attached to reality. Not every death in this world is because someone got a vaccine. It's just not how anything is possibly remotely attached to reality. It's just not. I don't know how we have, cannot arrive at a point where the conversation is not as idiotic. Well, you're wasting everyone's time by talking about this. We all know that, right? That, that's, that's basic common sense, right? I'm wasting everybody's time. Between me and you, I'm wasting people's time. Again, not every death is Betty White and whatever. Now it's going to be Chandler Bing and whatever. So at the end of the day... But that's what you say, not what I say. Why are autopsies being done, right? Because that's... Anyway, I saw a thing from MAGA yesterday. I thought it was brilliant. It said, make autopsies great again, because at some point we need to know what's going on. And uh, it would be nice if people actually told the truth. And Dr. Fitzgerald, if you're out there listening, please call me. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. All right. uh, Time for the news. Let me come back. Oil to electric. Don't go away. Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Elizabeth, you're on the air. Oh, hi. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Um, I just 
wanted to speak about the oil to electric incentive program. Okay. Uh, the government uh, recently announced a $17,000 rebate. Uh, I think it was the end of June, retroactive to April 23. But our, but our concern, or my concern, is that we had our central pump put in uh, October 22. The cost was 18000 We got back ten. And we had to get rid of our oil tank, which was only two years old. We couldn't sell it because they couldn't re-register it in anyone else's name. So we lost a couple of thousand dollars there. So that's ten thousand. And I just, uh, I think the rebate should go back like to when we got ours in in uh, October 22. That's they announced the rebate originally in April 22, I believe it was. So this. To me, that's discrimination. I mean, we should be getting reimbursed the same as anyone else. I, I mean, I don't know what the cutoff date should be, but I know I missed it too, right? We did a renovation of the kitchen, which was long overdue. Well, we did. We put in a mini split prior to any of these programs being offered. So I know where you're coming from, and I don't know what the appropriate retroactive date should be. But I guess me, you, and many people listening who took it on ourselves prior to the announcement, we're kind of wishing that we had some of the federal and provincial government support that I missed out on, you missed out on. Well, I guess you got 10 grand back. What was that under? I did get 10 grand back, but... I mean, you know, we jumped on the uh, jumped on it when we heard it first. So, I don't know. I'd just like to know what other people's opinion is. Maybe we need to speak up to government. Like, they should probably bring back the rebate back to April 22. You know, the extra money. <laughs> it's hard for me to argue with you on that point because I wouldn't mind getting a few bucks back myself. To be honest with you, Elizabeth, okay. you know, these programs were inevitably coming. And I mean, even in my house, we talked about, you know, should we wait because I have a funny feeling that some of these incentives are going to come to pass? And this is an honest conversation that I had like over two years ago because the writing was on the wall. It really felt like some of these things were going to happen. And we, you know, the time was right for us. We were doing the work anyway. So we did it. And then full well, when these announcements were made, we both looked at each other and said, yep, could have waited, but we didn't. And that's it, Ralph however much money well, I guess. anyway I just wanted to put it out there yep. maybe you know see what other people's opinion is and see if anyone can you know get any more satisfaction out of the government yeah fair enough yeah. Uh, I'm glad you made the point yeah okay thanks for your time Patty just very quickly Elizabeth before you go so what okay. has it meant for your heat bill are, are you seeing the benefit are you seeing the uh, the cost recovery yeah, he feel I'd say we're saving it a couple of hundred dollars a month. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's a good choice. We're, we're saving as well. So I'm thinking cost recovery on mini splits is going to be less than three years, which is really helpful to us. And I'm sure it'd be helpful to anybody, you know, to have it less costly. And, you know, just the impact of a cold winter morning to get a quick blast from the mini split and or a really humid day to get a quick blast of the dry temperature or the dry setting. It's worth its weight in gold to me. Yes, and even the air conditioning in the summer is great. Yeah, absolutely. I love that dry <laughs> setting. <my> <laughs> 100% Elizabeth, appreciate the time. Yeah. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Take care. All right, bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Yeah, there's lots of questions about the programs, how they work, who's eligible. Some of them are pretty low thresholds for net family income. 
Some of them have been, you know, much easier to access. Some of them have changed over the years where it's not upfront, upfront costs, which is difficult for many to bear. And, you know, now there's direct billing available, which I think makes it much more attractive. So anyway, let's go to line number one. Good morning, Chess Crosby. You're on the air. Thank you, Patty. Um, calling in a different capacity than you might be used to from a couple of years ago. I'm no longer leader of the opposition, of course, but I've been uh, making myself busy as a volunteer with the National Citizens Inquiry, uh, which is all volunteer-driven and funded and held hearings in eight cities across the country. I'm the administrator, and uh, the commissioners are going to bring a report out this month or coming month, November, probably in the middle of the month or late in the month. Uh, I was on your show with Linda Swain there about five weeks ago because they issued an interim report. And uh, the point of the interim report is just to to uh, demonstrate to Canadians that this mantra about vaccines being, the COVID-19 vaccines being safe and effective is an advertising slogan. Because while it appears on Health Canada's website, it does not appear in the regulation or order which approved the COVID-19 vaccines. Those words appear nowhere, and there was no such determination about safety and effectiveness made by Health Canada at any point, and there still has not been. Um, which dovetails into my point, I guess, uh, about your discussion just a few calls ago with Steve. It was rather spirited, but I think where you disagreed were on matters of opinion. And I think to resolve these issues, we all need to agree on what facts are. And all I'm saying is anyone can check this for themselves about the safe and effective determination never having been made. It's a fact. What is not a fact is how some of the conversations unfold, though, Chess, which has made it virtually impossible to entertain. Just from my own perspective, I never thought I'd be more sick of anything beyond Muskrat Falls, but I am. This is this is much more uh, impactful negatively on me. The problem for me, Chess, is that if there's been adverse uh, reactions, which there has, the fact of the matter is when we talk about excess deaths, you know, there are some corners of the conversation that refuse to acknowledge that it doesn't necessarily mean that every excess death is vaccine-related. Because at the same time, we're talking about what governments did with lockdowns and impact on mental health. At the same time, we're talking about surgical backlogs and worsening of symptoms when you get a chance to present and get your procedure or to get your diagnostic imaging done. So there's probably upteen reasons as to why. But again, and Steve accused me of nitpicking here, but the facts remain. If I have to put up with being told I'm going to hang for treason, even though I don't have a medical degree I haven't told anyone to do anything uh, and if, if all of a sudden Betty White dies and I got to put up with endless stream of vaccine related memes and stuff and Matthew Perry dies over the weekend I guarantee you I had 100 emails about the vaccine killed him so how, do, how does anyone navigate that that's my okay. uh, particular well, problem I can, under- I can understand why you're getting um, put off uh, by that and again we have to uh, try to find out for ourselves what are the facts we can agree on so that last caller, or the caller Steve, gave you some statistics, which I realize you haven't had a chance to look at. Uh, but, you know, that's something you could potentially look at and see if you agree with them or not. And that's how we should proceed on this stuff. Um, 
So, you know, what you've just expressed is a common feeling, I think. Uh, COVID is over. Let's get COVID behind us. Let's move on and forget about it. The problem with that is, Patty, I put it to you, that COVID is not over. And there's evidence for that statement. I point to what went on in Parliament last week. Two things. One was uh, Pierre Poiliev, the leader of the opposition, the Conservative Party, moved a private member's bill, which has been outstanding for a while, which simply called on uh, members of Parliament to affirm something which has been longstanding in Canadian law. And that's the right of medical freedom and medical choice, the right of informed consent, and to not be coerced into vaccination. Uh, the other parties, other than the Conservative parties, voted against that. Why? Well, that can only be because they want to have the ability to bring back coerced vaccinations when they think the time is right. They don't believe in those principles about informed consent and no coercion in medical autonomy matters. So that's one thing that happened in Parliament last week, and that's why I say COVID, in fact, is not over. It isn't. Some people Just, have their way. Do you actually envision a time where mandates will be reinstated for COVID vaccinations? Because I've said this many times, and I'll stick with it. We should have listened to the social scientists as much as we listen to other scientists, because they told us exactly what was going to happen, especially when we talk about mandates. So I would be 100% shocked if it ever happened again, because, number one, it was unnecessary. Number two, it didn't work. You know, like even when we talked about uh, self-isolation upon return from travel and what have you, I was a case study. I got it in England, but I didn't test positive until I returned home. But yet I didn't have to self-isolate based on my vaccination status. Much of it just didn't make any sense. So I would be obliterated to ever think that anybody thinks a vaccine mandate is ever happening again, especially for COVID. For COVID. Other vaccinations, which we understand much more clearly, should absolutely be part and parcel with attending school and what have you. But now the other side story on this one, Chess, and I'll get your perspective, is the COVID vaccination story has now led to weariness inside some of the general public for other tried and tested and true vaccines, which have proven to be extremely effective and extremely helpful. I mean, measles are popping up again. Do you think that that's a real problem based on how we've talked about the COVID vaccine? Now it's been a more, more widespread weariness or distrust of other vaccinations? Uh, you know, that's a debate I just don't want to get into because we've got enough on our plate right now with the COVID-19 vaccines. And uh, i just pick up on that point about booster uptake. Your listeners uh, who might be considering getting a COVID-19 vaccine booster should ask this question of their health care advisor. And I don't say family doctor because, of course, as we know, 100,000 people here don't have one. But ask this question. Have they had their latest booster? They'll probably say, no, they haven't. And if they say that, ask them why not. Okay. When it comes to effectiveness. So in this province, and as a former politician and someone who's spent his life here, we talk a lot about the aging demographic. We talk a lot about the prevalence of the so-called comorbidities comorbid and chronic illness and uh, issues regarding our cardiovascular and our, our uh, immunities and all the rest of it. But yet the COVID-related or die with COVID or however people would appreciate to be phrased, the death toll stands somewhere around, I think the last number I saw was, 
364. Does that not say in some form it absolutely has been uh, effective? Because I've also long said there's no one silver bullet here. Public health policy, whether it pertains to vaccinations, physical distancing, cover your coughs and sneezes, washing your hands, whatever it is, in combination things work because a death total in this province with the age of the population, with the comorbidities at 364, does that not speak to some form of effectiveness, Chess? Um, you know, that's a matter of opinion, Patty, and you can have an opinion one way or the other on it. I just asked you yours. To express, well, I'm trying not to express opinion because I want to come around to this. In the last two weeks, and this is a fact because it's an admission by Health Canada itself. They admit this, so it's a fact. They're, the COVID-19 vaccines were being ad- offered are adulterated. They're adulterated by foreign DNA. This is factual, and if you check with Health Canada, you'll see their admission on this. Foreign DNA and something called simian virus, which means monkey virus, 40, which has been implicated in causing cancer. These are things which simply shouldn't be there. The product which is being offered is not the product which was approved. Now, Say what you want about it. This is Health Canada's admission, and the reason I'm bringing this out is mainstream media is not very good at giving this information to the public, so I'm calling in to offer that to your listeners. Uh, fair enough. And again, I hate retracing my own steps, but sometimes I have to just for the purposes, the obvious purpose here. I have never pretended to understand a lot of the implications regarding the chemical compound or anything else of the vaccines and going with opinion, you know, and, and again, you know this to be true, too, you know, whether it be your background as a, a lawyer, what have you, facts and numbers and data can be spoken to how it suits one person or another, one agenda I or agree. another. I mean, that's I an agree. indisputable fact. So while we're talking facts, I, th- I don't think we cannot include that absolute well-documented historical fact that stats can make them sound like whatever you want them to sound like if you are and i'm not accusing you of it if you're cunning enough to do it it could be done sure however i'm saying to you that this is a health canada admission so if you want to know about the meaning and they go on to say that they expected the proponents of these vaccines the manufacturers to bring this to their attention and they did not so the question becomes, well, Health Canada, what are you going to do about this? You have an adulterated product. Um, so I'm just going to end there because what I've offered now uh, are two sets of facts that may disturb your listeners. One is that the vaccines never were determined to be safe and effective. Although those words appear on the website, they're not in the orders. And Health Canada in the last two weeks has admitted adulteration in the vaccines, which is a big deal. So your listeners can draw their own conclusions. And we've invited NASI and Health Canada on the program, to be honest, Chess, because I'm, listen, it's an opinion-driven show, but I think you would acknowledge that I've been pretty straightforward on trying to deal with facts as much as possible. And we've seen that report, and we've invited both of those bodies on the program and hope they'll respond to our request. Well, I hope they do as well, but I'm not optimistic because, as Steve pointed out, you can't get answers from these people. 
let me see what I can do. And I appreciate the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, well, listen, you probably have my email, so if you think you're getting on the show, I'd be uh, kindly ask you if you could give me an alert. Now listen. I will kindly ask you to listen every day, 9 to 12. <laughs> yeah, even better. Thanks, Jess. Okay. All right, bye-bye. All right, before we get to the break, let's go to VOCM News, Linda Swain. Linda? Yes, uh, Patty, we have an evolving situation in the Waterford Valley area. RNC are currently responding to a report of what they say is a potential weapons offense in the area of the Waterford Hospital in St. John's. Residents and drivers can expect to see an increased police presence in the area. However, a number of schools are now on lockdown or secure school mode based on uh, advice they have received from the RNC. Those schools include Waterford Valley High, Cowan Heights Elementary, St. Matthews Elementary, Beaconsfield Junior High, Hazelwood Elementary, and St. Mary's Elementary, all in that general uh, Waterford Valley area. The Waterford Hospital also on lockdown as we speak. Uh, NL Health Services call it an evolving situation. Now, RNC are trying to determine the veracity of the report, but you're going to see an increased police presence in the area. That isn't to say that something is happening they're checking on the possibility that something could be happening uh, so I uh, just want to make that clear parents and uh, and others are being asked to avoid the area as officers investigate the report and we'll have updates on this uh, throughout the course of the morning uh, so uh, as a, again RNC responding to reports of what they say is a potential weapons offense in the area they are currently checking and investigating to see if there's uh, any veracity to the report but schools in the meantime as a caution are on lockdown in the area as is the Watford Hospital. And protocol is clear. Secure uh, school mode is kicked in right away. I mean there doesn't need to be a conclusion of investigation when it comes to issues like this. Linda, I appreciate the update. Thank you. Okay. SVOCM's Linda Swain. Let's take a break. When we come back, Jen Dion is back. We'll talk about the Poppy campaign. Tom wants to talk about housing and then we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. We don't want to give a short shrift to any of the callers here because we're 20 seconds away from the news but we will indeed be bringing updates as soon as we know more information about what is a supposed or potential weapons-related incident in that part of the city, which I've seen, whether it be the Waterford Hospital lockdown and or secure schools protocols being implemented in all the schools in that surrounding area. So when we know more, we'll let you know. Uh, today's a good day to get on the show, though. If you're in and around town, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, one 590 vocm which is 8626. Jen Dion coming up right after this about the poppy campaign. We got cut off earlier, and uh, Dave's going to get Tom back to talk about housing took away nutrition exercise keeping the cold at bay whatever keeps you feeling great the wellness and healthy lifestyle show on your vocm welcome back to the show let's go line number two jen dion you're back on the air good morning again patty how are you very well thanks for asking and how about yourself oh i'm grand it is a beautiful day but it is a bit nippy uh we were talking about that you asked about the permanent poppies that people wear, whether it's seal skin or or whatever. And I was just about to tell you that uh, the Legion heard those uh, uh, cries of owl when you 
you know, you always pierce your finger with those pins every year. Uh, we actually have a permanent um, poppy center now that uh, you can obtain through your legion or if you're lucky at one of our poppy stations throughout uh, the province. Uh, so you can just ask for those this year and uh, you'll never lose a poppy again with one of those. I got to tell you. You know what? I knew about that and it just did not cross my mind when I asked the question. And we did have Darren from Always in Vogue on the show to talk about the seal skin poppies. And of course, 100% of the proceeds there go to the Legion. So it's just another option out there because I guess ultimately what the Legion wants and what veterans want is simply for people to wear them. Where they exactly. get them is yeah. just a part of the conversation, not to be all and end all. Right, exactly. Like, I'm not really going to get into, of course, there are some people that sell poppy items that aren't uh, licensed through the Legion, and uh, some of the profits don't go to the Legion. But really, I think my focus, because of my dad, is really just about looking around and seeing everybody in the community wearing them. It's such a powerful symbol that we, as a society, it crosses all ages, all political stripes. I mean, everybody, um, it, it's kind of a no-brainer to wear your poppy. Um, a couple of the myths around it, of course, include glorification of war. That's really something that I, I think hopefully everybody knows that's not what wearing the poppy is about. It's the fact that undeniably, there were Canadian men and women who uh, gave their lives and uh, sacrificed themselves for our freedom that we enjoy today. And that's indisputable. And that is worth our thanks and our remembrance. And they were put in harm's way due to the nature of the beast with being a member of the military, as opposed to their want to kill, their want to glorify war. The, you know, a veteran stance on this is very different than some of the general public that make that issue regarding a puppy, uh, poppy, the controversy that they have it in their own mind. So anyway, I'll throw that in the oh, yeah. No, for sure. I mean, dad, uh, you know, dad will always, he was the first one to acknowledge War is a horrible thing, and nobody wants it. But if you got to go, let's not remember why we had to go. Fair enough. And not all of these conflicts are created equal either, to be honest. No, that's true enough. I mean, one of the most joyful uh, people that uh, experiences I have at the poppy table is talking to new Canadians about what the Poppy Campaign and Remembrance Day is all about. They're obviously coming from very unique and different perspectives uh, when it comes to war and conflict. Uh, but being here in Canada, I think uniformly, we must agree that we are privileged and we enjoy uh, a safe uh, reasonably safe uh, society compared to some of the countries that these new Canadians are coming from. So they are one of the first people when they find out what the campaign stands for to want to wear the poppy for these two weeks. Absolutely. Uh, and I, I see Ronnie Butler around all the time talking about what's going on at Branch 56. Uh, anything else you want to tell us this morning, Jen, while we have you? Well, no, just, well, you know what? It's just that remember that the, the legions are run by volunteers. So anybody you see staffing a poppy station, please take a moment just to stop and thank them. You know, either you're wearing your poppy or you don't. Just don't run by the poppy stand or say, you know, like whatever. You got time enough to express your gratitude and give a smile. 
So please, please, please do it. Appreciate the time, Jen. Thanks for this. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Okay, let's keep rolling. Let's go to line number four. Stan, you're on the air. Eddie, um, I was going to call last week, but someone beat me to it. I'm talking about Jerry Byrne. I mean, he's there with that big smirk on his face all the time. And when he comes down, I I got to turn off the TV. I don't want to lose my meat on his head. It's great to bring up, uh, build up the population, but, you know, our own crowd, as you know, are out camping now. that are now, uh, you know, living uh, in tents. And you bring in all these people. I'm not prejudiced, but you bring all those people in. And we don't have enough housing for our own crowd. And where are those people, uh, you know, going? I don't see them out camping. I don't know where they all are. I, what I would say to immigration-related matters is in this circumstance, there just wasn't a careful enough evaluation done to exactly how many uh, newcomers could be accommodated because the housing issue is not just in this province. It's right across the country. So if it's about you know, uh, housing... Uh, I mean to cut you off, but you know the housing. There wasn't much talk about housing only lately since we started bringing the people from other countries, and you know, like I said, it's great to bring them in, help them out, and all that. And they're not coming in with a lot of uh, money in their pockets. You know that uh, they're lucky to get out of their, of their country with the clothes on their back, and and they're, they're not coming in here and able to buy houses unless they're getting an awful lot of help from the government to buy housing. Which they're not. Well, and, 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 you know, when Jim Dean got on there, I don't know, within the last two or three weeks, he had, like he's out trying to help him out, and he mentioned this, this family that was staying at the hotel uh, from um, up to last December, up to whenever he was talking on, on the TV there, and, uh, and they were offered a house, but no, no, they didn't want that house. They wanted a five-bedroom house with a garage and a big backyard. Now, are they coming over here dictating to us what they want? I mean, there's people out there camping. They'll, they'll take a one-bedroom house if they can get it, but this, this, this family wanted a five-bedroom house. You heard that. You see that on TV. Jim Din was on talking about that. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I saw it. I don't know how to incorporate it. You, you want a three-quarters million or a million dollars to buy a five-bedroom house. And how many how many families got a five-bedroom house in Newfoundland and Labrador? Not me. No, far from it. A three-bedroom house is common. That, that's, you know, but, uh, you know, and, and Patty, and then getting back to uh, those Canadians we're bringing back from Israel or wherever. I mean, they're Canadians, but, you know, they came over and got to be Canadians, and then they go back to those countries. As soon as there's trouble, get me out, get me back to my country. They're, they're living in their country, but they're, they're, they're classed as Canadians, and we got to send uh, planes over to bring them back at our cost. And that then went down when, when, when the money was given out for the, the COVID, when, when the, pre, the Prime Minister started giving out the money. So they're, they're leaving the, India over there like, like rats, uh, leaving the sinking ship, come back and get the free money. Yeah, but you couldn't get the, you weren't eligible for the money. I mean, getting people out of war-torn countries who are actually Canadian citizens, it's our responsibility, isn't it? Yeah, but I mean, Patty, they're, they're, they're Canadian citizens, but they're also, uh, they got to be Canadians because they came from other countries and got uh, as classed as Canadians, citizenship. And then he went back to their countries. As soon as the trouble, get me out, get me out. Yeah, I, I personally, I think that's our federal uh, responsibility to get Canadians out of countries that are in the strife or in the throes of war. But uh, your comment about people coming back to Canada from other countries to simply get COVID money, they weren't eligible. They didn't get the money. 
Well, at all. Coming back from other countries because uh, the money was given out. But anyway. But they, I mean, they just simply weren't eligible. That money didn't deserve it. Well, there are plenty of people did, and that's a problem that we talk about all the time on the show. But people just coming to the country for COVID money, they 100% just simply were not eligible. For starters, you had to have filed your taxes here. And if you're living and working for X amount of time in India or anywhere else, you didn't file your tax here. So you were just technically ineligible and didn't get any of the money. Now, regarding how many people who were, for instance, one of my boys, I told my sons, you're not getting it. Why? Because you live here. You have no expenses, so you're not getting it. One of the boys, when he lost his job because of it, he got one month's worth, and I said, look, that's it. We're, we're not doing that because we don't need it, and you don't. You shouldn't get it. And there were so many Canadians that knew that they weren't even eligible, but went and got it anyway. So oh, yeah. that's seniors, been a problem. Seniors got it, then. They, they knew they weren't, weren't supposed to get it, but they, they took their chance, and they got it. And I say a lot of them didn't have to pay it back. Well, in this province, we're clawing it back. Uh, that's one thing I know for sure. What we haven't done is try to get any of the money back from the big corporations in the emergency wage subsidy. You know how many companies created a dividend for the first time ever, uh, upped their dividend, and or just showed a profit based on COVID money? When that's not what it was for. It was for to keep people employed, not for I corporate know, dividends. My wife worked, and she worked with Eastern Health, uh, and she was getting a pension You know, when she retired. <clears throat> Excuse me, I want you to turn... <clears throat> 65 to cloud back almost her old age pension. They took back almost uh, $5,000 from her provincial pension. That almost wiped out her pension she got for turn 65. That was a cloud back there. So, I mean, people say, oh, you're getting a pension from work. You're getting this pension, you know, old age in Canada. Just a cloud back one. That's just my, my wife that I know of. And I know there's an awful lot in the same category that, you know, you, you don't, they, they, club, they keep you at a certain level. They want you to get above that level. Yeah, which some of those rules regarding overlaps of different pensions it has nothing to do with COVID. It's just a flawed system. I know that. Not yeah. like COVID. I'm just saying. But, you know, when you worked all your life for a pension and then when you reach 65, the government, the principal government wants so much money back, so they cloud back almost their old age pension, pretty close to it. Yeah, that whole, that whole concept about how much money you should be able to get when you reach uh, uh, get to the age of 65 is kind of ridiculous and it's long been pretty ridiculous Stan, uh, time for the break, I appreciate the time this morning, thanks for the call all right, thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, final break of the morning. Don't go away. Darlene wants to talk about the mini tamp- uh, tent encampments we're seeing, and Mike wants to talk about the war memorial. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Mike, you're on the air. Hi, Mike. Hello. Hi there. How are you doing today, buddy? Doing okay. How are you doing? Uh, I just wanted to mention, and you were talking about poppies out there, I'm going to but uh, Alberta legions were putting out the hatch, which last week forget the poppies out the problem. Say that again, Mike. We have a poor connection. What are they doing elsewhere? They're putting out the baseball hats with the last week forget on it. They got the poppies on the bib. Oh, I see. And you see them everywhere out there, all over the place. Plus, it's making money for the lead. But the other point I wanted to mention I was with the War Memorial. They should have planned this a lot better, so this would have been done before Remembrance Day. Like, it's one day a year. They waited until, like, there's, they passed probably three, four months of good weather where they could have been working on it and have everything at the last minute and didn't shut down and make a big screw up of the services. Like, I don't understand that at all. It's not even going to, it's going to, the work's going to extend well into next year is my understanding as well. And for the first time in 100 years, the Veterans Day ceremony will take place somewhere other than the Cenotaph, the War Memorial in in St. John's. It's remarkable, isn't it? It makes no sense. Like, one day a year you couldn't do this. It's bad enough when you go by the War Memorial and and you got people hanging out there and sitting on it and smoking their dope and everything else but like 
this is the city. They've got to plan this a whole lot better, I think. Mike, you know what? I'm not even 100% sure who's driving this particular bus, whether it's the city, the province, the feds, the legion. I, I don't really know because I know some work had to be done. It not only needed a facelift, but it had to be work had to be done to accommodate the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier as well. So I'm not really even sure who's behind all of this work, to be honest. It, it don't matter. I think you could have been okay. planned out a whole lot better. Fair enough. I'm not trying to legs, but I just it could have been better. That's all I want to say, dude. You have yourself a great day. And remember, state all the bad out It's a fair point that you know it's a shame it won't be done for November 11th. So completely understand, Mike. I appreciate the time. Have a good one. You too, buddy. Bye bye. Yeah, uh, but I mean, I wasn't trying to dissuade the opinion because I think he's right. But does anybody know for sure who's actually behind all the work? You know, who's driving that particular bus? Anyway, let's go to line number two. Darlene, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? Great. How about you? I'm doing better than some of our fellow residents, I am. (laughs) What's on your mind? It's my first time calling. I'm just, um, I actually took the time last night to write a letter to our premier and all the powers that be. I'm, uh, I'm very, very concerned about our residents who are currently in Tent City on the opposite side of Confederation Building. Um, I know they've been here since October 3rd. They started with 35 people. I've been in contact with some of the underground volunteers that are in the area. Um, I live I live an hour and a half outside. And Patty, uh, thank you for taking my call. I'm just trying to do the best I can to raise awareness. I didn't know it even exists until the 13th of October which I took it upon myself to go in and bring in some wood and, and meet the people. I've sat in their tents. I've listened to their stories. Like, this is our fellow human beings, and I, I they need help now, now. I'm really worried that if they don't get help over the next couple of days without getting too emotional, we're going to have a lot of sick people or even worse. And now the reality is, unfortunately, Things like this didn't just start on the 3rd of October. I mean, there's been tents in some of the parks, especially out in some of the back areas of Bowering Park. We've been talking about people living on the trail network, Happy Valley Goose Bay and otherwise. There's just a really renewed, keen focus on it. Uh, When the tents pop up on the parkway, that just brings a different flair or feel to it. Yesterday, I had cause to drive by the Colonial Building, and there's a ton of tents in behind the Colonial Building between it and Bannerman Park as well. So, yeah, it's a it's a real thing well there's some uh, good volunteers in the area and they they check on them daily and i just found out myself about the second one that has uh, popped up pardon the pun down um i'm unfamiliar with the area but the colonial building so some of the residents that were at tent city and this is is, today will be my seventh visit i'm on my way there shortly um they have moved down there because it's a little more sheltered in they Mm -hmm. feel a little more they're not as vulnerable but, I mean, the, the point is it exists. The housing is an absolute, like, crisis. You can't get an apartment anywhere. Some of these residents, I mean, they, they just, and I like to call them residents, not homelessness. You know, they just don't have a fixed address. They need help. Uh, and I've had people say, like, you know, these people don't need help. These people got addictions. These people this, these people that. These people, Patty, these are our fellow human beings. You got to put all the politics aside. You got to put all that affiliation aside, and you got you got to do what's right. And I'm. This is all I know to do. I can go out here and give them an, a hug, an ear, let them pet my dogs. You know. 
and call you. <laughs> so give us, us uh, an idea, the the gist of your letter. I can certainly do that. I have it in front of me here now, and I'll just uh, go down through. So it started off with, please help. I'm asking on behalf of the 10th city residents as a very concerned citizen. Um, I have, and I specifically asked for my local MP, Pam Parsons, my uncle MHA, Ken McDonald, the housing minister, Paul Pike, who don't know the difference in 750 and 11, but that's another story. The premier, and I also just like included everyone else's addresses that I had. Right, and um, you, 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 you suggested they do one in particular. Um, I said, anyone who can point me, we need a topic address. The temperatures are very negative. We need to find these housing. I've been to the shelters. They get put in a shelter for a night or two. And the next morning, they're being returned to Tenth City where they feel safer. Patty, I went in one myself, and they're unfit. They're unclean. The stove don't work. The bathroom didn't work. The people that's hanging around them. It's a sad state. And this is I'm reading my letter to you now. A sad state for fellow human beings to be in. Some have mental health or are getting over addiction issues and they're and living in a tent. So that, you know, that's not helping their situation. Just one young girl used my phone to call the counselor for her mental health and was told to call back in 72 hours. Now, I'm going in to physically check on her today because I have no other way to contact her. What's happened to her in the past three days if she was reaching out and wanting help the other night? It's just a fit. I'm just doing my best to try to bring awareness. Yeah, good on you. Um, and, you know, even I folks, said, sorry? I mean, you know, good for you for doing what you're doing. Even folks Thanks. who are trying to find an emergency shelter, you know, to be told that you have to get a call back, what happens if you don't have a phone? So well, the system isn't working. On October 27th, I was in St. John's for some, uh, actually, Pierre came, and I was in for the rally. So I stayed in all night at 1230. I drove to a gathering place because I knew that was one of the shelters, the only one I knew of. I'm from outside the city. I'm like a bay girl. And I talked to six residents who are outside of it, ranging from 22 to 74 years old, who couldn't get a bed. They're in the pouring rain. They weren't bogging. They weren't bombing. I asked if they wanted a hot chocolate or a cigarette or get in the car for a quick warm-up. More than appreciative. More than appreciative. And And... I was staying away initially, like I was nervous about going because it's like, oh, what if they all tax me? They don't want my help. It's not that at all. The more than appreciative. And the one that, to end on a good note, there was 35, 22. As of last night, there was only 11 in 10 in that encampment. And I'm hopeful I'll never stop fighting for them. I'm going here today to politely try to protest and, you know, <laughs> give them a bit of hope, let them know they're not forgot about half load of firewood that my aunt donated. Um, and the conclusion of the letter, Patty, I just said that I have met the ASE workers. I've met some RCMP while I was there, and they're doing absolutely everything to keep these residents safe. The tensions are high there. These people are dealing, some of them are dealing with mental issues. And it's just so cold. Like, you know, the cops have helped me unload the wood, safely got me out. It's been a positive experience that way. There's Volunteers, there's something going on with volunteers conflicting with one another in there. I don't have anything to do with that. I'm an army of one, and I just goes and does what I got to do. And fair enough. I mean, it looks. Right? I did a little live feed the other day with the permission of the residents. I didn't use no names or faces, but let them tell their story and put the call out for the police help. 
Well, you're you're doing good work, and I'm sure they are absolutely appreciative, as they should be. Just like others who are have been there repeatedly over the course of the last few weeks, trying to do what they can to help. And of course, yeah. it's incumbent yeah. on the government to be the last uh, uh, the last arena where they owe us the help. As much as volunteers are doing good work, we've got to figure this out with government policy. Darlene, you've had the last word. Safe travels, and thank you for making time for me and the vol- and the folks at Ten City this morning. Thank you, Patty. Thank you for taking my call, and uh, perhaps I can call back in a few days with some good news updates. I appreciate the time. Thank you. Have a good day. You too, Darlene. Bye-bye. All right, a handful of a show here this morning, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.